0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Talks TV. I'm Lee. I'm here. I'm joined by Spencer Spencer. Say hey, the people. Hey, everybody. Spencer, we have uh, finished the Queen's Gambit. We are on to bigger, better things. We're doing something a little different this time. Uh, Typically on Talks TV, we will cover a television show. This is a podcast that was spun off of our GOT Got Questions podcast, which was a review podcast of uh, HBO's Game of Thrones and the world of A Song of Ice and Fire. We since moved on to this podcast channel where we just kind of go from TV show to TV show. We've done a really kind of eclectic range of television shows. If you are just catching us now, I mean, our back channel includes stuff like Chernobyl. We've done Mandalorian. We've done the Queen's Gambit, as I mentioned, which is what we just previously finished. We've done Succession. So we've done a lot of stuff. We're shifting gears a little bit now spencer we're going to change to this is not really a television show so we're kind of cheating the the name of the podcast (laughs) here instead what we're going to do is we are going to review movies adaptation movie adaptation of john grisham books and why are we doing that well because uh not too long ago uh i told you i was looking for new reading material Uh, traditionally you have read more for fun than I have. I'm a big TV guy. You 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 read a lot in
1: the past. Lately, you've been reading a lot more than I have.
0: Yeah, I, I've, I've pivoted lately. I've just, I've enjoyed reading. I I uh, have a whole like system for myself of getting on my exercise bike and reading and mm-hmm. then having a cup of coffee in the morning. Anyway, I have a, a system for reading now. So I was looking for stuff to read, and you mentioned that if I was looking for something quick, fun, engaging, there was a back channel or back catalog of works by a guy named john grisham which i'm sure everybody has heard of john grisham <laughs> that i should check out well when you told me this i knew john grisham wrote books mm-hmm. period
1: hard to miss that detail he's kind of part of the cultural consciousness i think less so lately than he was maybe like back in the early 90s
0: i couldn't have told you anything else i couldn't have told you what type of books i couldn't have told you the type of uh, I now Some of his adaptations I had heard of, like uh, A Time to Kill or The Firm. Mm -hmm. I I couldn't have linked it to John Grisham. Anyway, you made this uh, recommendation to me about five weeks ago. In that time, I have read A Time to Kill, A Time for Mercy, (laughs) Rainmaker, (laughs) A Pelican Brief... The
1: part, I've read five books in five weeks. This is the power of John Grisham. He is the grand master of the page turner. I think I refer to you as that if you're going to read an airport book, read a good airport book. And, you know, that is what he offers. Yeah, I mean, I think
0: everybody has seen those used bookstores in an air, airplane yep. airport, uh, yep. airport where, you know, you're just looking for something that will pass the time. And these do it really, really well. I mean, I, you know, some of his stuff, I think borders on like, like a really good book like something that like should be like you know in a library Mm -hmm. and then other stuff you know
1: it's like well this is just kind of you know it it gets me through the day and that's okay too and for this one i kind of recommended that you go out of order because the first one i actually recommended to you i think was the rainmaker
0: was the rainmaker and that is what i read first i have read the rainmaker and this is the the rainmaker will be the first movie adaptation that we are going to cover here on mangum Talks tv breaking new ground this is our first movie we are doing the rainmaker this is a i believe this is a francis ford coppola movie
1: yeah we figured if we're going to do a movie adaptation why not do the guy who directed the god directed wrote the godfather and apocalypse now seems like a good way to start
0: so this is not backed up by any actual research but i envision what happened here is the rainmaker came out came out in the early 90s Mm -hmm. and i bet you francis ford coppola sitting in his mansion in beverly hills read it and went (laughs) you know what, I want to make a movie out of that. Uh, and so, because it's very strange that he would just jump in and grab this one. Um, I feel like this is probably a script that was circulated around Hollywood and when a production company caught wind that Francis Ford Coppola was interested, they're like, sure, yeah, fine, let's just make it.
1: And he, he wasn't even just interested. He didn't just direct it. He also wrote the screenplay for it. So he seemed like he really wanted to get this one out, which after a rough run in the 80s of him basically being in debt and being forced to make movies, this may be in a, bit of pa- a bit of a passion project for him. And the cast
0: includes Matt Damon, Danny DeVito, uh, Danny Glover, mm-hmm. and Kevin Spacey, and then the, the the woman from Homeland is in it, too. Uh, Claire Danes, and I don't think Kevin Spacey. No, not Kevin Spacey. No, I'm mixing up the movies. Not Kevin Spacey. Um, John Voight? But... John Voight, that is the opposing counsel. The time to kill opposing counsel is Kevin Spacey. Yes, he is. Good call. You've been watching ahead, sir. Yeah. So opposing counsel is John Voight and Claire Danes of Homeland fame Hmm. is the damsel in distress in the hospital. So, so that's that's setting the stage for what we're going to talk about. Uh, before we jump into it, we have some housekeeping. Let's talk a little bit about other pods we do on the Mangum Talks podcast channel. And then we will talk a little formatting because the format of this pod is going to be a little bit different. So um, other pods on the Mangum Talks podcast channel, these are available at magnumtalks.com. You can get them at our Captivate channel. You can get them on uh, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. Uh, Ghana, all kinds of podcast players, any podcast player that you can get them, you can get these podcasts and a big one that we are just about to release is what we're just going to call Mangum Talks. And this is a shared experience podcast where, uh, the brain trust here at MangumTalks.com myself, Spencer, two guys on this podcast, Levi and BJ, we all get together. We have some sort of shared experience. We talk about it pretty flimsy, uh, idea for a podcast. You can drive a truck through it. I understand that, but I will tell you this, it's pretty fun. And if you liked whiskey on the weekends, and now defunct podcast we did where the four of us got together and talked, you're going to like this because it's a similar sort of thing. Mm -hmm. We get together, we chat, we make fun of each other, we tell inside jokes. Uh, It's a blast all the way around. Spencer, you're involved on a couple other pods here, Mango Talks Podcast Channel. Uh, why don't you tell the audience about them?
1: Well, I'm involved in Mangum Reads, which is kind of a digital book club. Each week, we recommend a different work. Or we just we pick a different work that we're all going to come together and discuss. We invite our audience to to read it with us and offer comments or commentary. And we provide a full discussion of it and have a lot of fun doing so. Lately, we've been doing a, on a run of mysteries, which has been quite a bit of fun. And as this kind of a was originally a bit of a component podcast of that, but it's kind of developed legs on its own, we also do what's called Pottering Around, which is the chapter-by-chapter recap of Harry Potter from three different perspectives. The perspective of your wife, Sarah, who is the kind of grand dom expert of the subject matter. Uh, Me, Mm -hmm, who somehow knows absolutely nothing about Harry Potter. I don't know how I've really missed that growing up. And BJ, who knew something to start, knows nothing now, but generally offers a nice sarcastic commentary to round things out. And we have an absolute blast doing it. We're midway through the fourth book of the series right now, and I'm very excited to see where it goes.
0: That's Pottering Around and Magnum Reads. Check them out anywhere you get your podcast. So Spencer, the issue at hand, Francis Ford Coppola's adaptation of John Grisham's The Rainmaker, we are going to start with a recap. Now, typically on this podcast, I would do the recap. Woo! We're flipping it around for everybody, Spencer. You are going to do the recap. Indeed. So I am going to, I'm going to put it in second gear. I'm going to back up a little bit uh, and let you do the recap. Then we're going to talk different. I'm going to jump in, scholar that I am, and talk about the differences between the book and the movie. And then we'll talk uh, a little real lawyer, fake lawyer, which is a, a segment where uh, Spencer as a real lawyer, talks to myself, a fake lawyer, and we talk about the law as represented in both the movie and the book, which mm-hmm. ought to be a pretty fun segment, too.
1: And, and part of the reason we switched this up is that Lee has made a decided disadvantage here of where I read a lot of John Grisham when I was just like, you know, in high school and going into college. But I've not read any of these now in what's that, 15 years? So I'm yeah. working from memory. So Lee very much is now the expert of this particular podcast and going forward as we do more is John Grisham. That's right,
0: ladies and gentlemen, I'm a Scholar um i'm the knowledgeable one here i'm gonna come in i'm gonna drop t-bombs as we go um let everybody know something so I, I will talk a little bit about the differences between the book and the movie as we go but i will i will kind of do a conclusion at the end where we sure. kind of say all right well if you you know gun to your head you're picking one you get to read the novel you get to watch the movie what do you do mm-hmm. Well, we'll get you an answer by the time this podcast is over damn straight are you All that being said, hmm. Spencer, are you ready to lead us in the recap of The Rainmaker?
1: You know, I'm going to struggle through it. I'm sure you can provide some helpful tips as we go, but we'll improve as time goes on.
0: Yeah, let's do this.
1: Well, our setting for this is so typically John Grisham. You've read enough John Grisham to know that he has a particular, loca- a particular group of people, a particular age group, and a particular location area that he loves to set his stories in. And this one is very classic. Our main character is Rudy Baylor, a recent graduate of the University of Memphis School of Law. And he is at that magical point for all new lawyers coming up of where he has just graduated, he's finished his 3 year, but he's not past the bar. For those that aren't familiar, you don't take the bar when you're in school, thank Christ. You instead take it during the middle of that summer after you graduate. So pretty much every lawyer remembers that period of when they, for about two months, do nothing other than study, to go to that point however you're only really able to do that if you either have a job or enough security to be able to take that amount of time off to do that our young rudy baylor is not that to put it mildly rudy is a bit poor <laughs> it's a bit
0: po- poor in terms he's of rudy- pretty poor yeah we get it we get like de- in the book we get very detailed explanations of his finances and he's like He's like teetering.
1: I mean, we start off the story of Orb I mean, He comes from a very poor, a very poor and very broken background. And we'll find out more about that as we go. Uh, he does not have any particular prospects, unlike the rest of his class, who's applying and getting jobs at top law firms. And he just got evicted from his from, from where he was living. He is kind of down to whatever money is in his pocket. And because of that, he, though, going to law school with very, very aspirational, honorable goals, inspired by civil rights lawyers and everything that he accomplished, they could accomplish to improve the reputation of law, the job, of, the job options there are not great. So instead, working off a tip he gets from a bar he works at, I think it's the bar owner that lands him the job, he gets in touch with Jay Lyman Stone, bruiser, who is an, a very different kind of lawyer than he, inspire, than he aspires to be. I think it's fair to say that Bruiser's a businessman who's also a lawyer and I use business in the giant air quotes the FBI likes to list on the top of their case files. And that he runs entire strips of somewhat disruptive businesses and also runs a law firm which works differently than most law firms I've ever applied and worked at. In the sense that it's not soured, you get a third of what you kill and you draw a thousand dollars in expenses each month that you have to pay back. So it's not a great option, but it's having no other really you know, choices available and being promised that it's a great job that he'll learn a lot in, Rudy signs on and brings with him two clients, later on to be essentially three. Uh, first of those clients, you know, factors in the early part of our story primarily, is Miss Birdie. I think her name is Miss Birdsong, who is an old lady that he met at a legal, at a legal aid clinic who is purportedly worth millions and needs help with her will. His other potential client is a family that is suing an insurance company for denying benefits. Uh, specifically, Great the Benefit blacks. Insurance Company. The Black family, led by the illustrious Dot Black, which is a wonderful name. Uh, he says that he's got these two options available, and as a result of the mentioning that he has, he's suing an insurance company, Bruiser partners him with Dick uh, How? What, what can we say about Dick? Uh, he is essentially a former member of the insurance industry himself, who left and decided he was going to be a lawyer. He's not really succeeded in that regard, but he kind of functions as a part lawyer, part paralegal, or at least a lawyer without a, without a light without, a, without having passed the bar or much less to having any license to practice. But he's their local insurance expert and he, he gets partnered with Rudy as a result. And the first thing he first thing he can tell upon looking at this contract is that this is a kind of a pump and dump scam. They sign people up, they promise them all kinds of benefits, and then they just reject them out of course once the time comes. Well, to introduce these, um, with respect to Miss Birdsong, that's the first place he goes after. He meets with Bruiser. Miss um, Birdsong is a, a supportively wealthy woman who's looking to cut her children out of her will. Cut, 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 <laughs> cut, 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 cut. One of the first things we learn, though, and this is a nightmare scenario that every law- a lawyer has to go through who is it exactly she wishes the money to go to instead of her children? <laughs>
0: It's, uh, it's a Joel Austin type, yeah, it's some sort of, like, uh, like um, televangelist. Uh, what does she say? He needs a new jet?
1: The, the, his jet is... With a straight face, she says this. His jet is getting old, and he has so much overhead.
0: That's <laughs> hilarious.
1: I think we... Can I pause
0: there and talk a few differences? Please. All right, so Spencer set it up. So basically, you know, you've got young Rudy Baylor... He is um, done with law school, ready to take the bar. He's got a couple clients-ish that he met at a, a legal aid clinic. Mm-hmm. So, few differences. First is, Spencer said that Rudy Baylor went to the University of Memphis Law School. In the book, it's Memphis State. Yeah. There is no Memphis State. Um, however, if you draw the parallel to University of Memphis, University of <laughs> Memphis Law School is the number 138th law school in the country, so I don't think that Grisham is trying to tell you that this individual went to one of the most prestigious law schools. Definitely not in the country. I mean, you know, 50 states, right? So you know, this is this is less than this is like third in every state. Like 138 is like not even top two in every state. So it's pretty low. Um, then we also have so there's a lot of consolidation that happens oh, yeah, in, the, in the book. They. Um, they it's not so in the in the movie when they're talking about how uh rudy gets these these clients they talk about this this legal aid clinic that's kind of seen off screen in the book we very much see it and it's basically just them showing up to an old person's like recreation center yeah and just sitting at a table and waiting for old people to come walk up and and talk about their legal problems it's a very it looks it sounds completely miserable
1: it, it, <laughs> And good Lord, does it exist. It is marketed for young, for you know, law students of this is how you can find out about the practice of the law. Help people and learn diverse areas as you go. And good God, can it be unpleasant.
0: And in the book, there, uh, Rudy has a best friend named Booker. Booker is scrapped completely from the movie.
1: One of a few people that is,
0: yeah. Yeah, they scrap Booker completely. Booker is an African-American who um, is his best bud. And that comes up later. But anyway, that's some of the main differences right from Jump Street.
1: And and it's also a big one, but I think it's good that we go into it later, about the movie just kind of yada-yada is why he doesn't have a job. Whereas the book goes into a lot more detail, and it honestly sets up one of the big points of tension that we really see in this movie, of Rudy as a young lawyer has a somewhat still idealistic idea of what the law is. And this movie is going to, at many turns, challenge him about... The study of a law may be sublime, but the practice is vulgar.
0: That's true. So in the book, he, he actually has, a, when we start, he has a job. Yes, he does. And it's a little, like, small, like, five-partner deal okay. in downtown Memphis. And he he signs up, boom, I got this job. And then all of the rest of the hiring happens of his law class, right? Like, all everybody else gets a job. Yeah, And then... The law, school, the law uh, firm that he has the job with gets purchased by a big, like, corporate, like, super, you know, yep. high-dollar law firm. That we're going to see again. And then they just cut him. Yeah. Spencer, you went through this process of, you know, getting out of law school, trying to find a job, trying to take the bar. Is it, it, it does that line up with your experience where like everybody's starting to graduate, they all start procuring, they start getting jobs? What? M- most? And then like if you were to get a job and then lose it, let's say one month later, you might have. Missed out on a lot of spots that were open just a few weeks ago.
1: Yeah, most people get jobs, either either the jobs they've previously arranged from prior years when they worked during the summer, or it's a job that they actually got during the course of the school year, during on-grounds interviews or during travel out for interviews. So most people are already set before they go to the bar, before the summer starts. If you lose a job at that point of when basically everyone else is stable, of when all the 1L, of all the new hire recruiting has been done, you can be really fucked Because there's a set period of when these large firms are looking to hire new lawyers. They go through the process, they hire the ones that they want, and then they're kind of done, and then they're not really looking to hire new people for up to a year or longer because that's not what they really want. They're hiring hiring new people to fill gaps and to provide necessary on-the-ground cheap labor. What they really want is established attorneys that can transfer in and bring a book of business with them. So after a set season, you're really kind of screwed if you didn't get into that gate. Yeah. Okay. All right. And Broody very much is. So, as he's, you know, returning to our recap, as he's dealing with Miss Birdsong and trying to desperately bite his tongue on the idea that she's just going to donate all of her, give her entire will, her entire estate, which he believes is millions, to this televangelist. Did we get a
0: dollar amount in the movie?
1: uh, We do. He assumes it's millions. He told Bruiser it was millions. We find out later that it's closer to like 40,000 bucks.
0: yeah, in the book, I think they quote, she quotes him something like like $30 million and, or
1: something. I mean, it's an astronomical thing. I mean, I don't think she's, you know, senile or anything along those lines. I think she may even honestly believe that she's worth that much. She just doesn't really think about it. It's not, it's not really something that matters oh, I to think
0: she's just lying for the, attention. That, but.
1: <laughs> book, I think she's lying for attention. Movie, I don't think so. Is They don't portray that aspect of her character. Yeah. Um, as he's leaving, she's just agreed to do what he's supposed to do. He notices that you know she has a beautiful garden, she's a well-maintained house, and oh, what is that in your backyard there? It appears that she may have a solution for his recent eviction problem is that she has a bit of a backyard apartment, which she agrees to offer him for a very reasonable rate. Great, because he doesn't have a salary, as well as agreement to do some chores around the house and some weed pulling. We'll see what she actually means by that here later. <laughs> His next stop, and I think I reverse these, but his next stop is actually... Isn't
0: that interesting, though? Uh, sorry to cut you off, but isn't it interesting, though, that, like, lawyer guy forgets to read the details on the lease agreement? Like, don't you think he would want, like, <sighs> some specifics around how much manual labor is required?
1: This is the exact <laughs> reason that I advise lawyers to never represent themselves, because everyone's blind when it comes to them. Everyone just trusts the person that they're talking with. <laughs> Ah, uh, but yes, he does not realize that A couple weeds means, hey Here is my uh, here, Here's my, my my mulch that's now Arriving, don't worry, my yard boy will get it We'll get to that in a minute um, yep. he, he stops over with the dot family And the dot family is a very Classic, almost archetypical Kind of poor white family They're comfortable enough, they're functional Enough, but you'd struggle to say That they're middle class by any definition uh, Probably I'd just say they're Outright, outright lower class Dot Black is very much the matriarch of the family. She's in charge. She's keeping people together. Buddy, her husband, is there, but not very actively. Uh, I think she, I think she says that he is a war veteran who has enough metal in him that he can't walk through it to a through a metal detector at the airport. Um, and so, mostly spends most of his time drinking and retreating out to a car as kind of his place of refuge to drink. Their Son, on the other hand, is uh, our, our our main character here of where he is. Billy Porter, uh, not Billy Porter. Um, I wrote down his name. What did I write down? Donnie Black, uh, Donnie, Don, Black.
0: Donnie Donnie. Yeah, yeah,
1: Donnie Ray Black. He is suffering from a very severe case of leukemia. He's actively dying, and yet, despite the fact that his mom paid all the benefits, did everything that she was supposed to do, the insurance company, great benefit, is basically just telling them to go get pissed. In fact, the latest letter that they've just received arrives about the same time Brody does. And late, you remember roughly of what it tells her? Um,
0: yeah, we something along the lines of I'll, I'll do dramatically here. Please, I don't please. have it in front of me. Dear Mrs. Dot Black, mm-hmm. we have refused your claim sixteen times now. Mm-hmm. Each time you send the claim, we refuse it. Same every time what are you stupid 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 and it's funny because in the book they have the they actually have the letter and i remember reading that going man if spencer like i I always think about you as a lawyer right? i'm like this how you would salivate if your client got that (laughs) from an insurance company. here's
1: my punitive right here here's the here's the punishment damages thank you (laughs) <laughs> it's an egregious letter. It's a letter that no attorney would have ever allowed this guy to send. You Not only is he just very rudely rejecting them, he's ending the letter with, you must be stupid, stupid, stupid. Signed sincerely, Senior Vice President Everett Lufkin, or something like that. Puts his name on it. Yeah, oh. Personal signature. He personally wrote the damn thing, as it turns out later. This is no form letter here. So, this, Rudy's, I wouldn't say... He's not the kind of attorney to salivate. He's the kind of attorney at this point that is just utterly flabbergasted by how bad this is. So he pulls out the contract and he needs all three of them to sign. Because effectively they have damages too beyond just simply Donnie himself. They're particularly going to have damages going forward because Donnie's case is very much terminal. The period by which they could have gotten the operation and fixed this is really, if it hasn't lapsed yet, it's going to lapse well too quickly for them to do anything about it. So while he's getting the two of them to sign, he begins to start to get close with Donnie himself. The two of them really become buddies as this movie goes on. And we get a very symbolic moment of where Donnie starts to bleed uncontrollably, a common symptom of leukemia that your blood does not clot. And it just starts pouring out of his nose like a faucet. And it gets everywhere, including on the contract as he signs it. Contract very much signed in blood. And a moment so symbolic that even in the moment, if, I was, if that had happened, I'd be sitting in the car saying, this is biblical. This has crossed a line from normal legal practice to something different right now. Yeah, for sure. Well, Rudy now has a house. He has two clients. But the difficulty that he's facing is that he has the bar exam coming up. Very soon. Three weeks at the start of the story. And by the next moment, we kind of jump in. He's only got a week more really to go. And Bruiser's not one that's really happy about people sitting around on his dime, which I say that, but he's not paying them. So what the fuck are his complaints? Oh, let's go to the Bruiser's,
0: um, how he how he pays his attorneys. Yeah.
1: It, it, what, what did you think of the idea that he is not giving them a salary, they get 30% of what they bring in, and he has to pay them back, have, they have to pay Bruiser back a $1,000 in expenses each month. Uh,
0: it sounded to me like um like an actual like a like a like a salesman gig yes. like a legit salesman like yeah. that's the type of economics and it, it you know i mean i don't have a per- that doesn't personally offend me cuz like I, I mean you know i don't have like a vested interest in the fight with these lawyers but y- you know you having gone to law school and like you know admitted in the bar in multiple states you have to be a little bit offended at the idea that you'd be like I, getting like a like a salesman gig
1: i'm horrified by this <laughs> are you
0: horrified because you're hoping the market doesn't pick it up
1: yes dear god don't don't do this this is the kind (laughs) of thing this is the kind of arrangement that works if you're like if you're like a partner of the firm which case you just have like an even distribution of that of what the firm brings in whatever else sharing the profits you don't do this to an employee an employee already has to eat the shit for you so that you can make your profits you don't make them have to you know kill to live but This is how Bruiser does. Bear in mind, this is a guy that has several strip clubs within walking distance of the front door of his office that he owns. He owns, yeah. He opens the conversation with, let's see the FBI try to understand the code on that one, which already tells you everything you should need to know there. And he Mm -hmm. has freaking sharks in his office. Not in his firm. He has sharks behind him, which the bartender, who seems like he's a business associate of Bruiser, even comments, hey, look, he's got sharks. It's a joke, right? ha ha.
0: <sighs> Bruiser is played by Mickey Rourke in the in the um, in the movie, mm-hmm. and I read the book before I saw the movie. I had envisioned Bruiser being much fatter than Mickey
1: Rourke. It- That's a route they definitely couldn't have taken. I think Mickey Rourke does a good job with the character in representing what he stands for and embodying him, but not the physicality necessarily that the book is going for.
0: Yeah, the book, I think he's like a 300-pounder in the book.
1: Yeah, this, he's more lean and mean. He's more like a mafiosa kind of attorney, where he's evenly cut, perfectly trimmed. He's got that kind of edge to him, which is a different way of framing the same thing. Um, Bruiser's not happy about, you know, an attorney just sitting there on his dime, So he encourages him that, well, actually, before we even get there, we see Rudy do two things. One, we have the scene with the mulch of where first night sleeping in his new, brand new apartment. We get to see Miss Birdie reveal what she means by pull a few weeds. How much mulch would you say is on this truck? Because it seemed like a hell of a lot of mulch.
0: In the book, it's a, its literally a ton.
1: It looks. This is not. This is not like you know, a few bags. This is an entire truckload, full flatbed of this large truck is just loaded with mulch. But don't, lo- don't worry, her yard boy will handle it while she makes as much noise as possible to wake him up. Um, we also—that's <laughs> the same as the book. <laughs> we, we also get to see exactly what it is that Bruisner's mainline business is. These guys are ambulance chasers. To a practically hyperbolic degree. They've got connections in local police stations. They've got connections in the hospitals themselves. And so Dodd decides, let's bring Rudy on a mission of sorts. A recruitment, mi- a recruitment mission. Where they literally go into the hospital. They go up to the still unconscious patient. They wake him up. And they get him signed while he can't even move his arms because they're still in a damn cast. I'll, I'll, and Rudy, who is they? Who is who is they that get them get him signed? It's
0: Rudy and my main man deck. My favorite yes, character yeah. in the whole deal. My main man deck uh played by Danny DeVito. The, Love this Deck.
1: Is, this is Danny DeVito at his most Danny DeVito in this movie. And he does a great job with it, and the character is lovely. He's really good at his job. His job is just the seedy underbelly of the law that Rudy's horrified to realize is now his job too. Is they get him signed, and Deck has to basically Dekapul serves as a are kind of a mentor to a different side of the law to Rudy, where he explains to them that what you learned in law school—that's not the law. That's theories. That's ethics. You got to learn this stuff that I'm showing you right now, or you're going to starve. There are too many attorneys in this town. There's not enough opportunities. You got to jump on them. And he embodies basically three virtues: that don't steal from your clients, try not to lie. What was the other one? There was, there was another one there too. Uh, and, and yeah, and so um, you fight for your client, refrain from stealing money and try not to lie. Try not to lie. Yeah. <laughs> try not to lie. Uh,
0: Question for it, two questions for you about deck. Yeah. One, have you ever met anyone? And if the answer is no, what would you do if you had who introduced himself as a paralawyer?
1: <laughs> I would be immortally offended as a lawyer <laughs> to that answer. It's like you've got some checkboxes that you can make. That is not one of them. You can't draw a line between paralegal and lawyer and say, I'm here.
0: I'm a paralegal. Second question: Have you ever known anybody to fail the bar six times?
1: Yes, yes. It's it's it's, <laughs> wow. it's it's actually not. It's one of those disturbing things, and there's a lot of debate among psychologists why that happens. The more times you fail, the more likely you are to keep failing. Yeah, it, it, it's both. You know, people that aren't that have, would struggle with it normally are going to fail lots of times, but it appears to also have a bit of a psychological effect. Of, it starts to become a self fulfilling prophecy. But yeah, Dick and you know. My cousin Vinny, you're kind of at the upper end of the scale a number of failures, but I was even next to a guy that was on his seventh time taking that half of the bar when I passed it in Florida. So it definitely happens, and I feel desperately bad for those people. You have to pay an arm and a leg to get there. But, so Deck gets him signed up, and what would you say is Rudy's general reaction to what he just saw and what he just participated in?
0: Uh, Mortified. In the in the book, Rudy uh, is the um, point of view character, and uh, of the whole book, by the way. If you ever want a simple read, the Rainmaker's there, one POV all the way through. It's Rudy, and he heart in his mind. He hearkens back to all the ethics classes he took in law school, and he should like as he's watching this, like the the lecture of ethics class is going, is like playing
1: in the background. Yeah, Yeah. For, for people that don't know. Lawyers are not supposed to solicit, particularly not targeted solicitation. You can make general ads. You can make general information kind of pr- uh, provisions. You can't go to somebody's bedside and help them sign with their broken arm. You can't do that. You also, the advice about try not to lie will, just even saying that's one of your principles will get you disbarred. But it is what the law firm of J. Lyman Stone runs on. So <laughs> having said that background, Rudy's trying to study. It's a struggle already, because he's only got a week before the bar, and I'm guessing the man did not take a bar prep course before he got to this point. No. Uh, so Stone sees him and it's like, what the fuck are you doing? Go work. If you're going to study some more, go study in the hospital. Here, here. Here's even a file about somebody you can recruit while you're studying. And he gives him a police report. And the police report sets up our third, I'd say our third other prong of main plot lines in the story. And we'll, we'll comment on changes, but I think they emphasize this one much more in the movie than they really did in the book. All the pieces are there, but there seems to be a focus on this one. Of where he goes to the hospital and he meets Claire Danes, who is playing a Kelly Riker in this story. Uh, He takes one look at her and he starts having PTSD flashbacks to his own childhood. Because he sees her for the first time speaking with her husband, Cliff, of where she has clearly been beaten all to hell. Her head is wrapped up. She probably had a severe concussion and contusions in her face. Her leg is broken. Looks like she's got an arm. It's in a sling. So let me let me do
0: it. Let me put a pin for just a second. Mm-hmm. I want to offer this disclaimer. The Story of Kelly Riker, both in the book and in the movie, is horrific. Yes, like John Grisham does not hold back not on some all. of these stories. I mean, he details her injuries, he details actual physical violence that happens to this girl. It's horrific. It's awful. It's it, it, it will turn your blood. That being said, if we make a joke about Kelly Riker, please don't think we're making fun of the fact that she's a domestic uh, abuse victim. Not, gone. not at all. We're simply making a comment about the fact that Claire Danes, however talented she may be, mm-hmm. and oh my God, is she a talented woman, Excellent. should never, ever again, on the face of this planet, ever, ever consider doing a Southern accent ever again. <laughs> I was Spencer waiting for you to comment because, on that. Because my this. God, that's the worst Southern accent. I, I was watching this with my wife, and I, I paused it, and I said... I can't believe Claire
1: Danes went on to other things after this. This is so bad. But <laughs> well, it's, it's important to note, this is really early in both Claire Danes and Matt Damon's careers. This was even before Goodwill Hunting. This is so early in Matt Damon's career. So this is very much them starting out, I agree, her accent is appalling. It is appalling. It is the accent of Miss Riker, not an actual Southerner. <laughs>
0: Oh, my, mister. How are you, sir? Uh, it is that it, bad. It
1: is very put on. Matt Damon's accent is not great, and he's barely trying. Danny DeVito is not trying at all.
0: Obviously, Danny DeVito is, is a is a Brooklyn lawyer. Yes. He's my cousin, Vinny.
1: He's very much so. <laughs> and and Dan, Danny Glover's also clearly a transplant. He's not for trying there. Really, the best Southern accent, and he really does pretty well with it, is John Voight. John Voight does a damn good John job. John Does I, a
0: great job. He
1: does a because, great because job. It's, of the character. it's the, it's it's very specifically Tennessee. Yeah, he he practiced to get that really well done, and he just embodies the mannerisms mannerisms of a smarmy big law Southern lawyer.
0: Yeah, I, I don't like John Voight as a person, but he does a great job in this role. He's
1: an excellent he's an excellent actor. We can comment on him as a person later. For um, sure. But the moment really, there's a, there's a bit of a lightning lightning in a bottle moment when it comes to these two because both a Rudy sees his mom embodied right here, the relationship that his mom and his dad had, his dad being a violent drunk, just immediately represented in front of him. And possibly both in that background and maybe just an honest to God, you know, attraction moment in the universe, he is immediately drawn to her. Not the recruiter, he barely even pretends that that's that's any part of his motivation. He just honestly goes up to her because he wants to spend time with her. He starts to talk there. And the moment that they start to talk, there is immediately started a bit of a a connection between the two of them, particularly on Rudy's part. And we'll discuss their relationship in greater detail below, but I thought, you know, we could comment on her accent to any degree, but I found their relationship very believable and the chemistry between them quite good. Or at least I I liked the two of them okay. What did you think?
0: Well, they are both in their wheelhouse flirting. Matt Damon does great in the rom-com roles. Um, Claire Danes uh, does a phenomenal job as a sort of like flirtatious, um, you know, uh, a, a, a character. You know, we see we see those chops in Homeland pretty much every single episode. Very much so. But I, I don't know. I just did not know what to think about him, her being beat all to hell, yeah. and him being attracted to her and coming on to her while she's in a hospital gown, having been beat half to death by her husband. I just didn't know what to make it. I couldn't tell if it was like, ew, like Schwarming, like that he would even be thinking that while looking at her or if it was somehow beautiful because he saw past all of that stuff. So I I didn't know what to take away from
1: that. It's a rough read. A psychologist might try to put some Oedipal notions in there. I personally think that, it's the desire to care for someone. And she's a person, particularly at this point, she doesn't really realize how strong she can be. She certainly doesn't represent it. But he says several times how much he desperately wants to protect her. And I think seeing her this low, that just every kind of protective maternal instinct in his body just turns on, partly from maybe not being able to help his mom in the past, partly from that's just what he's looking for. But I think that's a big part of the draw and motivation for him. He gets to just know her and like her personally thereafter, but... Um, we see several moments of when he finds out more about her background. She also cha- She also has a very important moment where she challenges his kind of idealistic view of the law, of where she asks him. So you're a lawyer. So, wh- what are you? What are you looking to? What are you looking to do? You're like, yeah, well, you know, I I'm try cases, whatever else. So, would you defend criminals? Like, well, yeah, sure. Everybody's entitled to their defense. Um, murderers. I, well, most murderers couldn't afford a lawyer. Rapists and child molesters, men who beat their wives, and Ooh. suddenly all of his idealism that he's just been trained on. But everybody deserves a everybody deserves a lawyer. You have to, your It's almost the equivalent of the lawyer Hippocratic a Hippocratic argument. You have to represent everybody equally. All of that gets challenged in the moment by someone that is at the suffering end of that person that you just said you would represent, and he has to answer. Yeah, both answers no, and then immediately deflects away to say, uh, "Criminal works is is a specialty. I'm mostly gonna do civil litigation. You know, like lawsuits and stuff." Um, we cut from there of where we have the, the the two of them part. They have a bit of a longing glance at each other to the actual bar exam itself. A week has passed. We've really we've been jumping a little bit in time between these scenes, and we get to hear Rudy talk about what law school was like. And I'm curious about your what assumptions you had about law school compared to what Rudy offers? Because Rudy says, you know, first year law school everybody loved everybody. Last year we basically were plotting ways to murder each other for any slight advantage.
0: It lines up with what I, I I think I know about law school. I mean, I know a lot a lot of lawyers, um, uh, like way too many. I work with a lot of them. A lot of I have like a disproportionate number of my friends that became lawyers and like from different friend groups too. So I don't know what that says about me. Maybe I'm the guy who likes to talk, and that's I just like. Gravitated toward folks who 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 also like to talk, and maybe there's a Venn diagram there. But I had heard the same thing, right? I heard everybody gets there. I heard the first year is scholastic, it's tough, it's a lot of rote memorization. It's everybody's excited to be there, Um, and that progress that by the time you get your third year, the classes are like not super hard um, no but no professors really holding your feet to the fire but that along the way it becomes like um, you know like a UFC octagon <laughs> sort of situation because yep. one thing they do in law schools and you, you can tell me about this is they have a class ranking See, I went to grad school like a normal person and yep. grad school yep. is pass fail high you get a high, a P, or a, a fail. That's it. That's three. There's no class ranking. So no one's trying to step on your head to get over oh, yeah. you know, to somebody else. But in law school, apparently, most law schools have class rankings.
1: It, it, it's even better. I mean, there's definitely class rankings, and every job, every interview asks you, so what was your class rank? It's like the first question they'll ever ask you, and they'll want to know why it isn't on your resume if you don't list it. Uh, the second thing, like where I, where I went to law school, and this is common too, your grades even within that class are graded on a curve. We're all, the teacher's only allowed to give a set number of A's. And so everybody's competing for those top A's because there's only so many of the teachers allowed to give and everybody else gets grades below that. So there's not even just competition among the broader class. There's competition in every classroom that you're in. And it only gets worse as time goes on.
0: I mean, I work in and around the law, like for my job, like I, I do. And... I think I I think I would enjoy like some of the material of law school, but everything I've heard about law school just seems absolute first off, it seems miserable. Second, it seems to not really prepare you to practice law. And three, it seems like it might
1: not be the best investment. Like, no offense. It is probably the most single most expensive, except it is an incredibly profound intellectual exercise. It is just mind-expanding in ways that you never thought possible. Your brain will just feel like it is working faster after you go through law school than it has ever before. However, it is one of the most expensive ways you ever humanely can do that for ultimately not necessarily a profession that's going to pay for it that great. So, a standard comment by everybody we all, every lawyer I know is whenever some young person says, Hey, I'm thinking about going to law school, what advice would you give me? I have never seen an attorney say other than this, don't do it.
0: Don't go. Yeah.
1: I I would do it again. I love the law. I enjoy the practice of it. But it is a special kind of person that actually fits in it well. But as...
0: Weirdly enough, I feel like Deck is like a... Because I've often had conversations with you where I've said... Um, you know, Spencer, I, 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 need, I need to like, like if I'm hiring for my, for my job, I know, like I need a real lawyer yeah. and you always kind of chuckle at that because there's like, in my mind, there's real lawyers, there's fake lawyers. Sure. And I don't mean that mean, I just no, mean no, no. like there's some people who went to law school, but I talked to them and I'm like, yeah, you're not, you're not a lawyer, what? lawyer. You know, it's like that thing in the West wing where Josh is like, I need a lo- I'm a lawyer. And then Sam's like, no, 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 you're not like a real lawyer. Yeah. Like I'm a lawyer. You're a real lawyer, Spencer. I know some like not real lawyers. Weirdly enough, Deck to me seems like a real lawyer.
1: And the problem that Deck faces is that you have to be also a fake lawyer to become a lawyer. You have to be able to go through the you have to be able to go through the process. You have to learn the theory. You have to be able to check the boxes. You have to satisfy the standards that the bar holds up to it. Otherwise, you'll never get in the door. You have to be able to fake it just long enough to bring your incredible, well-earned knowledge to bear, but he can't. He's too in the trenches. He's too weathered he looks down on the idea of, you know, the lofty tower, the learned profession style of the law. and so he'll never be able to do it because he can't.
0: Uh, he can't, you're right. he can't he can't get over that hump, but at the same time like, you know, both in the book and in the movie, the portrayal of the character is that he has a pretty good
1: legal mind. He has like a, he has a significantly better legal mind than Rudy does at the start of the story. Rudy's for sm- sure. rudy's smart. rudy is capable. rudy has a lot of potential. But he good is good public speaker, charismatic. He is dirt ignorant at the start of the story, and he would not have survived if he didn't have Deck there to help school him on some of these necessary elements of the practice of the law. Yep. But one thing he also gets Deck to do is to do some research right now about his about his clients, with respect to, to uh, Miss Birdie. Deck immediately says she inherited a few million, and all of it's gone. That between bad investments, the IRS, and some other things, she's down to like, like her last 40000 That's probably under a mattress somewhere. Which sets up a funny scene of when Rudy wakes up to find... Well, comes into his room to find that there's just a woman there wearing very tight pants. Uh, that turns out to be the... From world. Florida. From Florida. Very from Florida. Just, I knew you were going to <laughs> no, make note of that. Uh, <laughs> that is the wife of Miss Birdie's son. Who is seemingly there to check in on his own investments, effectively. To see, you know, to, to see whether he can convince his mom to tell her where her millions are, at the same time also to see when anybody's trying to steal her fortune. And he thinks that Rudy's the latest attorney that's trying to muscle his way in on that. And Rudy, very, very adeptly, this is one of the moments when we start to see that Rudy's got a good legal head on his shoulders, represents his client to say, I can't say anything about what I'm doing for, which very much appeals to her, And then proceeds to let them believe exactly what they want to believe without lying for an instant. That he tells them accurately that she inherited millions. Uh, And as a way of essentially persuading them to start treating her better. Which they do out of their own sheer greed, but I think that's something. Meanwhile, we learn about Claire Danes that she got married at 18, she miscarried, likely because her husband beat her. And she's in a situation of where her husband continually beats and breaks her, and is a violent, angry drunk. Even went after the police. The last time they went to intervene, and yet, presumably, due to family connections, is going to be set on bail and probably released without charge. The same time as ever before. And well,
0: she never presses charges either. That's that's a big part in the book. It is, is. you know, uh, Rudy saying, "Why don't you press charges?" And you know, I think in the in the movie. To speed things along, because by the way, I would like to point out one of my criticisms with the movie is the romance, like how close Matt Damon and Claire Danes got Mm -hmm. so quickly, like felt very unearned. It was like, bam, right away. In the book, it's much more earned. We're jumping weeks, yeah. (laughs) He pushes her like, why don't you ever press charges? And in in the book, there is a hint of... Um, that she actually loves this guy she's like well when he's sober he's good and, you know like there, there's that whole angle that and you don't really get the, the
1: movie in the movie it's purely just I, it c not say like press charges yeah. It's a, you need to divorce him you gotta divorce him now you're in the hospital it'll pass yeah. without an issue it's a really kind of pseudo-romantic scene is where he's holding her broken body and helping carry her in it's almost, kind of flirty in a weird way um, very strange touching the legs touching the legs yes and she says "You know, I can't divorce him he'll, he'll just straight kill me he's already told me several times that he would so the conversation kind of just stops there is that he's pushing her. she's just like, you don't know my life. You know what I'm living. You're going too far, too fast. She almost tells him to stop at that point. Um, so we then cut really, a lot of this is just kind of a setup to the other character relationships without really going into the main part of the plot yet. We start to go into the main part of the plot of when we're going, we, we meet, we arrive at a dinner date with Bruiser and deck of where Bruiser's being oddly generous. He's like, I right, just settled a big case here Ichia, here's 5500 bucks, Which, Rudy just goes, sure, that's great, that's how it that works. Deck is meanwhile looking at this like, well, that's never happened before. That is a warning sign. And immediately realizes that, and shows him in the newspaper, that Bruiser's actively being investigated by the FBI, and they're going to move soon. So Deck puts forward a proposal that what's become law partners will split everything 50-50. You go sneak in, take your clients we'll go practice on our own which basically really is like one and a half clients really at this point i suppose mostly the the black case and let's get out as fast we can because we need to move now so they get a tiny little walk-up office they rent a car they rent equipment they're basically broke afterwards but they got their one case their one big
0: difference big difference there in the book the book deck true to form my main man deck Brings a lot of cases with him. Yeah. That's what he brings to which the table, which is much more. He's realistic. like, yeah, he's like Rudy. You can actually like you know do all the stuff that lawyers have to do to run the business that I can't do because I'm not barred. Right. But here's all this business I'm bringing with
1: me. He's basically we're inviting Rudy to be the face that you will appear yeah. in court. You will handle appearances. You'll t- I'll do everything behind the scenes. And it makes a lot more sense because otherwise they're not able to eat. So Rudy's doing other work as he goes in the story too, at least in the book. Not so much in the movie. The movie seems to be he's got one case and that's everything.
0: And there's another moment in the, when they're sitting at that table and Bruiser's giving out the money where Bruiser, um, they hold up the wine and Bruiser goes, what the hell is that? And Danny DeVito just drops his face and goes oh tea. <laughs> well, that's a, That's a call to the book. in the In the book, Deck is a uh, is is an out now. Out, um, uh, he's sober, but he's an out. He's recovering and he Also, he's also a recovering gambling addict. So he's just got compulsive issues uh, running all the way through him. I mean, like he uh, he he will leave for week. I love Deck so much in yes. the book. He, he cracks me the fuck up. He'll just be gone for a weekend. And on Monday morning, Rudy will be like, where the hell were you? And he like, I had to jump state lines to go to
1: a legal casino because it was like he was itching. <laughs> Deck, Deck, I mean, both Deck and Drummond represent essentially attorneys that Rudy could someday be. They represent very much exemplars of aspects of the law that Rudy's never considered that he would ever be a part of. And this story kind of addresses the, the natural pulls that go, uh, affect young attorneys to move them in those directions. Both are corrupt. Both are rotten, but somehow the one that is at the bottom of the heap deck has more honor than the one that's at the other. That's at the top of the heap, but both are not attorneys that Rudy ever wants to be. But he's seemingly he's continually being pulled in their directions. But the big tension now is that the next day they get the files at the office is raided. The FBI is already there. Bruiser's just gone, and that same day Rudy's got an initial hearing. Yeah, they filed the case under Jay Lyman Stone's name, and the other side has, of course, filed a motion to dismiss probably for failure to state a valuable cause of action. We don't know. They don't really go into it as much in, much in the movie. And Rudy, is being the only person there now present, the only one holding the case file, is now required to actually represent his client in court, where he doesn't yet exactly have a license. He's passed the bar that occurred off camera in, in, terms, of, in terms of hanging out with, um, uh, with uh, Donnie Ray and Miss, and, um, Miss Birdsong. Um, but he doesn't. He hasn't actually gone through the paperwork, gone through the application fee, or gone through the swearing-in ceremony to be a practicing lawyer yet. So I was going to ask you about that. Mm-hmm. Should we save that? Should we should. Let's save that to the end. Make a note. We'll come back to it. Yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. And so he has this very weird situation where the judge is utterly chewing him out, and John Voigt, Mr. Drummond, has. What could appear on the surface to be a moment of generosity A moment of, you know, the old, the old illustrious member of the law Stepping in to help a new recruit Of where he volunteers to stand for him during the swearing-in ceremonies You need, traditionally you need an established lawyer To stand there with you when you do so Unless you're appearing at one of the large swearing-in ceremonies He does so And what this sets up then is A very much in-chambers kind of discussion There's no court reporter here. There's no audience. It is two attorneys and a judge talking. And these can be some of the most honest moments you ever have as a lawyer. They also can be what we see here of where, in what is a very much tag team battle, the judge (laughs) and attorney, not clear whether they've discussed things beforehand, but it's almost implied like they have, team up on Rudy to say, judge is going to dismiss this case. He finds it frivolous. Doesn't care if you appeal or move to federal court. It's not going to be on his court and his docket. You really should try to settle. Because the case isn't going to go anywhere anyway. How about you take 40000 bucks? Rudy reads this immediately. Not that they're making much of an effort to hide it. And uh, the judge himself... Ha- what would you say about the judge, just real quick? I mean, he, he is a, a certain stereotype um, himself, I would say.
0: Yeah, he is. He's, um... Yeah, he's like one of these old, stuck-up, um judges who seem to have an existing relationship with the defense attorney mm-hmm. um Knows him and by first obvi- avo yeah obviously is allowing that to to cloud how he's operating here and in the book they make a much bigger deal of that um there i mean there is chapters of this this judge um not being a cool dude um and and definitely favoring the defense attorney yeah um, and there's there's just evidence upon evidence of it, and it looks like you know there's just at, like this thing is going to be thrown out before it it's going to oh, yeah. be de- doa because the judge is like nowhere near it. Um, and, 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 he, and then of course you know it
1: turns on down. And he's open about the fact that I, it's just that he doesn't like this category of cases. He doesn't want no. this kind of case in his courtroom. And so he just he just dismisses all the merits or not. Rudy,
0: one of those like where you just don't believe in, uh, yeah, tort. You know, the big those big. Um, Uh, punitive cases
1: and Rudy takes this offer back to his client he's ethically required to do so if you're curious and basically just tells her and she agrees that they're looking to buy you off they're looking they're thinking that this is your price to just walk away and Dot Black has a spine she's got character she desperately needs the money probably but she isn't taking a dime of it and isn't going to take an ounce of their crap either and neither's Donnie And one thing we see in a lot of these scenes too is that Rudy gets real close with the client here. He gets very close with the black family, but he particularly gets close with Donnie. And that's something we're very much trained not to do. It's something we're encouraged not to get very close with clients. There needs to be a kind of a business relationship and that kind of separation. But that's not how Rudy runs, and it's very much embodying the kind of emotional practice of law that he still is able to represent at this point. So between those two it's agreed that they're going to they're gonna push forward with the case, even as Donnie is very much, very clearly laying dying right here before them. Um, but one thing happens that night, what's seemingly implied that night, is a bit of a miracle occurs. One of the most basic machina moments of this entire damn story is that our presiding old stodgy, coughing judge dies in his swimming pool that evening, and is replaced with danny glover and my friend who what is danny Glover? who is danny glover in this story
0: uh danny glover is a a judge uh, now he's a new judge right? brand new judge just a point brand the new bench. judge um just appointed by the governor to this so i'm going to explain it from so the, the i'm going to explain it as it's described in the book Please. and there's nothing in the movie that contradicts it they just don't fill out the yeah. all of the details. So, basically what it is 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 um uh Rudy's friend Booker. He gets he's yeah, I told you he's a, he's a black guy. He has a offer to work in a law firm with all black partners who, you know, specialize in civil rights litigation, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the guys who works there um has taken on cases Where he has fought insurance companies or big business on behalf of, you know, poor Mm African-Americans. This is the fucking guy who gets appointed by the Democratic governor to fill the vacancy on the bench. So Rudy's got two ends here. One, he knows the guy through his friend Booker. So he can he has a line, indirect line on him through Booker, which he uses. He taps many times during the during the case. And two, the guy comes to the bench having worked as a defense attorney who has represented or an attorney who has um, represented uh, clients who have gone after insurance companies for doing the exact same shit that uh, Great Benefit has done to the blacks. So it is a absolute uh, boondoggle for our main man, Rudy, to get this switch.
1: Yeah, I think I think Deck even refers to him as as their rainmaker in the story. Title drop. And I would suspect it's very he seems like he knows Drummond pretty well. And I'd suspect it's hates po- him. i suspect it's very possible the two of them have appeared on opposite sides of the judge's bench at different times in the past.
0: And there is a there's a moment in the book where they're trying to figure out that the old judge has died and they're trying to figure out who's gonna be the new judge and, and they they think it's gonna be this guy, and Drummond is is telling everybody he can tell that he is not he does not support <laughs> the appointment of this guy to the bench Mm -hmm. Uh, but apparently the 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 democratic governor of tennessee did not give a damn
1: and we see from here but for these like first three or four um legal scenes that we see of either in a courtroom or deposition i adore these as a lawyer because of how perfect they are how much they perfectly bring back memories of like that first hearing where you don't even know where to stand you're turning to the bailiff to even know where to go, and the judge just chews you out. Perfectly well done. And then on the reverse, this kind of in-camera conference that we now have in front of this new judge of just seeing the other side have not a chance in hell. Of what the other side starts tries to treat this new judge the same way that they were with the last one, Like, right, oh well, we've got this pending motion yeah. to dismiss. And the judge is like, oh yeah. Denied. Denied. Moving on um we need we, And in
0: there one moment where he goes i would I, I we we would like a motion for you to recuse yourself and he says anything else? He says, Any, oh yeah in the book the uh, Drummond goes i'd like you know he wants to he submits a motion for the judge to uh recuse himself mm-hmm. and and the, this judge goes okay is uh a- a- anything else and he goes uh, no that's it your honor and he goes okay denied yeah and it seems like such a like such a pitiful sort of like you you should you should recuse yourself okay that's
1: denied too which i I would advise any attorney that ever is like my judge is biased either you swallow that shit and just tolerate it or you bring evidence to bear you don't just go to a judge and say i think you should recuse yourself and not have shit to back that up because he's gonna deny it and he's gonna remember you said that for the rest of the case
0: yeah it did seem like a little short-sighted on drummond's part and it seems like in the in the book we see it more and probably because of how john voigt does the character right yeah in the book, we see Drummond really lose his patience yeah. multiple times, and like actually become very, very flappable, right? Yeah. Like, like moments where he he clearly is like huffing and he's red faced and he's what? angry. What? But like the way that John Voight does the character, they they really didn't build that into the movie. No. I mean, what? where he looks vulnerable, he looks like he's just taking l's, but you, he really doesn't show it,
1: which I honestly appreciate because it's more in keeping with the with the big trial level lawyers that I've met along his type of where they're unflappable except in their eyes at certain moments you can see that they're caught off guard whatever else but they don't show big emotions i kind of like the steely control that john voight represents in this but the hearing goes horrendously for great benefit the case is fast-tracked their motion to dismiss is thrown out and a deposition of Donnie ray is set for like a week from now which is all of those are nightmares for a defense team and particularly in an insurance case
0: question for you about this scene he Danny Glover says okay do you have your trial calendars around now in the book there's like a page where Grisham waxes poetic about mm-hmm. trial calendars being this like this thing that like completely governs the docket yep and it's like super important and like apparently like really this is how I was explaining the book really successful big-time lawyers um, it can be difficult trying to do anything with them in a case because their trial calendar's filled what? up and the judge will will typically schedule things around it. This judge gives not two shits and says, we're going to do it on this date anyway.
1: And the trial calendar thing is absolutely true. And it's part of the reason that um, major defense, ma- major companies they're bringing in defense counsel will like to hire these guys just because of how effectively they can delay a case just with how goddamn busy they are. The problem that they make here, and this has happened to me before, is that to, they represent power by bringing a team, and that is the worst <laughs> possible thing you want to do if you're trying to say we can't ha- we, don't, we don't have somebody that can handle this uh, this deposition tomorrow in a, in yeah. a week? Because the mm-hmm. first I, I've had this happen to me several times before. I was either part of a team or the judge knew what firm I was with, and I said, "Well, you're, I don't have availability on this date." And the judge just looks at me, looks down, and said, "Scheduled for this date. Somebody else in your firm can be there. Just go to." And it's all the worse if you've got several attorneys that are standing behind you because judging you'll say, well, he can go. Is he busy too? How about him? Which can is effectively go? what Danny Glover does. Yes. Yeah. My, my, my apologies to the defense, but clearly you've got enough attorneys to handle this. Mm-hmm. Um, we go from that scene to what is easily the weirdest deposition I have ever seen for a few reasons. Um, for one, it happens outside. I have never once seen a deposition occur outside, it theoretically could happen, but it's the reason that people often go to a neutral venue, like a court reporter's office, to do a deposition if they, if they don't have a sufficient space inside to do it. But Donnie's very sick. They're basically doing this deposition right now because he's going to die here soon. Makes enough sense, even though the acoustics would be nightmarish.
0: Is it weird for the judge to show up that, to
1: it? That was the second point. I've never even heard of that. It could happen. There's no rule against it. If anything, it makes a certain degree of sense, given that he's going to die, that they don't have time to come back to the court for objections. That he's basically there so that he can resolve, so he can resolve any objections on the evidence. That makes now. sense.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's yeah.
1: possible. It can make perfect, perfect sense for doing it. The reason we never see it in the real world, though, is judges don't have the time. This judge probably has several hundred cases minimum that are actively trying to get to trial. So he doesn't have the time to go to an individual deposition for one of his cases. Maybe they're helped by the fact that he just particularly cares about this case, or it's his biggest case, or maybe he doesn't have that many cases yet because he's new to the bench. That's also possible. But either way, they set it up for deposition. The, Rudy very wisely makes it a video deposition. Of course you do that for these kind of moments. And we get to see the initials of Donnie setting out his account of what occurred and what will ultimately serve as his last word come trial. Um, from there, we go to another series of depositions, uh, this occurring at uh, great benefit itself. Um, for those that aren't familiar, the main way evidence is conveyed between the parties is either by in a written format or by deposition, where you actually go and you talk to somebody that has either been appointed by the other side as their corporate representative or corporate designee, as they refer to here, or that you have specifically subpoenaed be it an employee or whatever else. Rudy goes with the intention of deposing a whole collection of people. Of the people he's looking to depose, how many would you say are there? Less than half?
0: I think, um, yeah. I mean, it, at least the first two are not there. Yeah. And in, I think in the book, it's like he's supposed to like depose like maybe five people. And the f- like I think there's one that, that's available. And that's like the CEO or something. Yeah,
1: but he's looking to he's looking to, to interview to, to the deposed people that are on the ground uh, jackie lamanchick the claims handler, the person that actually processed this file that originally responded all the letters along those lines um somebody else that doesn't actually even say who they are both of them both of them aren't available because they're no longer employed at the company and so the company is under no obligation to produce them company still could be sanctioned for not warning him of this i would move i would totally move for my fees for having to travel to attend a deposition of people that weren't there that they knew wouldn't be there when they told me they were going to be there but separate issue there pretty much the only person that is there is that bastard uh, assistant vice president that sent that stupid 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 letter as well as the corporate the corporate representative that the company's appointed to provide general information what is apparent from this deposition is just how with how little regard the other side treats Rudy that they're looking at Rudy as if he is just a nobody he's a new attorney he has no established pedigree. He's not part of a firm. We can just muscle him around. The John Vogt even opens with it, I think this guy should start. He even returns to it a couple times and Rudy tries to object. Just because they feel like that, Rudy's just going to be a- a What would
0: you do there if you showed up for a deposition and the, the, the opposing attorney said, all right, this guy will start?
1: I would say exactly what Rudy did. No. That, you know, I get to control the process of the deposition. I've prepared for it to be in this order. I need this person to be available. Okay. That, all right. Just
0: making sure that that was, that was in, that, that made sense. That
1: is absolutely in keeping. And it's very much, I'm the one that's supposed to set the trend there because I'm the one that wrote down all the questions that I'm going to ask. And they often very pointedly have to be in a particular kind of order. Mm-hmm. So it can often make a certain degree of sense to do the corporate re- representative first because they've got the general knowledge that they set up other people's testimony. But it seems like Rudy doesn't even want to talk to that guy. He wants to talk to the specific people. So it's very in keeping scene of John Voight trying to set the tone and Rudy just having none of it. And I love that he even says at one point that, you know, if you have any objection to this, we can just call the judge right now. Because that's absolutely what you're supposed to do in that moment. If the other side's in any way giving you shit, get the judge on the phone now. Call him, mm-hmm. get him to rule on the issue right now get that dispute there and done because otherwise it is just inviting further problems going forward or even waived objections going forward we go from there to two very different kind of scenes i mean we've gone from rudy just seeing just how utterly outgunned he is they purposely bring an entire table of attorneys just to oppose him just to represent how tiny he is by comparison to instead somebody calling rudy for help that claire danes calls Rudy in the middle of the night to just, she doesn't tell him really what happened, just that she's at the store and she needs to see him now. She works at a jewelry store. And he arrives at the jewelry store, Security Guard lets him in to find that she's there with a friend and she has once again been beaten to shit. That, yep. That she is, she's not good. Um, she's got bruises up and down her body over her back apparently Rudy takes custody of her effectively and drops her off at um, Miss Birdie's house that arranged with Miss Birdie that she's gonna stay with you for a while until further notice she does not need to go home that is just inviting him to murder her at this point that scene resolves and we then go back to Rudy at the practice of the law and have and this is very much deck bringing his prior knowledge and prior paranoia to bear Of where, seemingly on whim, he's decided to have the office checked for bugs—not the cockroach kind, the medium-grade circuitry transmit uh, voice across distances kind. I don't remember. I don't think the movie sets this up at all. Why he did this? Do you? Does does the book at all explain why he arranged this, or is it just his prior experience with the FBI and paranoia at play?
0: He, yeah. So he's he's checking for bugs because of the Bruiser case. Now let me back up real quick. Um, in the, in the movie, Claire Danes is taken in by Mrs. Birdie,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, she, in the, in the book the, she's actually taken to an underground, um, shelter for battered women that is not advertised and actually not incorporated as a real thing. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, this very like super underground thing where, uh, they take care of battered women and there's actually like armed guards there. Mm-hmm. Um, which I did some googling and apparently do exist in the world. There's these like you you would never know they for good reason. You would never even know what they are, but it's a place for, for women who are in immediate danger to go. Um I think that was another condensing plot line. It was just easier to put
1: her in with Miss Birdie which is simpler. There's a lot of con- there's a lot of consolidation that occurs in this film, and this one's the make this one makes the most sen- one of the most sense to me because it pairs her with yeah. an existing character An existing relationship that's going to expand going forward and brings her into the loop of the other characters that are already in Rudy's life. And I think that was a good call on their part. But In the book, there's no way that would have happened
0: because uh, Rudy would have been terrified to put her with Mrs. Birdie because he would have been scared for Mrs. Birdie. Yeah. But uh, anyway, anyway, it doesn't matter.
1: So, Deck's friend is checking the place out for bugs and lo and behold, he finds a few, which, based on their quality, he assumes is probably not police or FBI. And Deck, smart guy, Rudy's baffled. Rudy can't even think, who would do this to us? Deck's got a theory pretty quick. And he sets up... <laughs> A this is so great, brilliant, brilliant way of testing it. Please, so great. if you would take a second, talk us through how Deck and Rudy agreed to test this.
0: So they have the the I guess the jury list comes out, and it's um so the potential jurors, what, and so they
1: we 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 have we get to there in a second. We have to find out how they even know it's the other firm yet.
0: Oh oh. I don't know. You go ahead. You tell I'll that tell, tell, tell that and You tell the jury. Okay. I don't remember okay. that one. Uh,
1: they, they, what they do is that they arrange a call between the two of them. It's like, hey, guess who I was talking to on the phone the other day? Dot Black. Oh, Dot Black. Oh, yeah, she wants to settle. How much? Oh, she's looking to settle for 175 Yeah, I think we should take it. Very much set up of, let's give them this mm-hmm. knowledge and see how they respond. And the next day... John Voight Drummond called John Voight (laughs) I gotta pick one name to call this guy I'll keep calling him John Voight John Voight calls and directly says you know what I think we should try to settle this the kid
0: how about 175 yeah Yeah. (laughs)
1: because I I skipped this just to save time but uh, Donnie Ray died and they actually went to his funeral and had a very tender scene involving both Rudy and uh, Donnie's dad with respect to the picture which is one of the more heartfelt moments in the movie um but because he just died, she's looking to get out of the case. And he literally drops 175, which that is confident right there. That is, there's no way they're on to me about me bugging their phones. But they then have to ponder what to do with this. And Deck actually says the more honorable course of action and says, I guess we should go to the judge. And it's Rudy of all people that proposes they do the much less ethical, but probably much le- much more effective for their case strategy.
0: This is absolutely amazing. Yes, this, this whole thing. Um, I mean, have you ever heard of such a thing?
1: No, I've not. But it's it, this is the kind of thing of where every attorney watches this and goes, "God, I wish I could find a way to ever do that."
0: Yeah. So they know that they're. So now they're in a, a powerful position because they know that the opposing counsel is listening on their calls. So what do they do when the, the, they the they get the list of potential jurors when you're doing normal background, right? Mm-hmm. My understanding is when you are doing normal research on these people, you are not to contact them at all. That is absolutely 100% off limits. In court only. Yes. So you can, I mean, you can like run public searches on them or, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I think even some of the more, um, you know, really hands-on lawyers will do some background checks on some of these people. The extent of which I think probably gets argued about, about what's appropriate. But what they do, brilliant. Is Deck gets a guy, same guy that was who, checking the books, same guy that checking the books, to go out to a payphone and pretend to be one of the jurors. Yep. And Rudy calls him and starts talking about like the case and all this. Sh- First of all, you're not supposed to call him, and all this shit. And at one point, the guy's like, "Is this legal?" And Rudy goes, "Oh yeah, sure, it's legal. Just don't tell anybody." <laughs> Amazing. And they drop the guy's name. So what happens when they get to court and this guy oh, is being God. questioned? Drummond thinks he's got this ace in the hole. He goes, yeah. I will ask you here in front of everybody. Will you, will, will you please answer, answer truthfully? Were you at all contacted? And the guy says no. And he thinks the guy's lying. So he goes in and in and in, 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 calling the guy a liar. Basically, what happens? Don't you call me a liar. Out the, jumps out from behind the jury box and slugs him. Oh, yeah. So another question for you. You ever heard of a, during jury selection, nope. a juror taking nope. a swing at counsel?
1: Nope. <laughs> I mean, it, it is, this is honestly the risky nature of Rudy's strategy is because a judge may have grounds just to declare a mischild and throw out the entire jury pool at that point, if he wanted to. But this judge is essentially just willing to let Drummond hang himself. Because Drummond not only, not only just one of the worst jurors in the pool, because they, they ranked to the, the biggest problem children were, gets thrown out of the jury pool. Probably brought up on charges too. But, the entire jury pool now gets to see Drummond as just this insane person. The He's ju- already
0: called him. In the book, there's this great moment where um, Rudy's like, You know, I feel
1: like we, we made some hay. I mean, Drummond's already called the jury liars. Yes. <laughs> and, it, and Rudy plays it off perfectly because he makes, you know, the kind of principle, Your, Your Honor, this is an outrage, and goes in front of the judge and just. Legitimately acts like you know morally offended and flabbergasted at what Drummond's saying, and even the judge is confused. He's like, "What are you doing? What, what do you what do you have to indicate the jury pool's maintained? You have to tell me this now."
0: And he can't say a damn thing. No,
1: no. And then <laughs> I love that after this happens, John Floyd loses his shoe, glasses break, gets slugged on a courtroom floor, embarrassed in front of the jury. Rudy just looks over at him and does like a little, "Hey, hey," did you hear us on the phone. Hey and John Void to give John Void enough of a realization of don't you fucking do this again we've yep. got you here son um, but yeah as I said it's an utterly great scene it's risky it's unethical I think i remember the book it's one of the things he actually dwells on that he did this rather than the more ethical thing of just telling the judge and getting Drummond thrown out or disbarred
0: well it's even more I would think um, it's even more of a gamble because He's got the judge on his side so much, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right, because like if the judge ever caught wind that Rudy didn't like, I mean, what I mean by this, is, like the judge is already on Rudy's side. Oh yeah, like so, like you, if your judge is already on your side, I think you've got you can play it straight. Mm-hmm. That's totally cool because you go to the judge and you're going to get favorable rulings.
1: Yeah, very much so. Uh, the risk that he could run at this point is if he finds out if the judge finds out that he arranged this. In any way, or found out about this and didn't disclose it, he could get in a lot of trouble with the bar and the judge himself. This, so it's it's a it's a lighter shade of gray, but it's still pretty unethical what he did here too. Um, the other thing that sets up in this scene too is that he's finally convinced Claire Dane to file the divorce papers, and he even gets the guy, the seemingly multi-purpose guy that he that uh, Deck brought in to deliver the papers for him to Cliff, who does not take it well, but.
0: We do, we don't. So in the book, that guy is, is, so Deck, Deck is the man. Yes. he That is Deck's body man. He is ah, the muscle. Makes sense. He's the muscle that Deck hires. And so when that guy delivers the paper mm-hmm. to um, Claire Danes' husband, he, Claire Danes' husband starts to throw a fit and that guy's like, do you want to fucking go? Like it, he like, let, it like gets in that guy's face and great moment of bully being bullied. That guy completely cowers yeah. and is like, "Oh shit, no, I can't. That, I'm not gonna do anything."
1: Cliff is very much the guy that only beats up on people that he sees as weaker than he is. He'll fold like a he'll fold like a blank at the moment. It's somebody that actually stands up to him. Mm-hmm. Um, we then see another scene in court of we get to see Rudy's first examination of a witness of where Dot Black is on the stand as a you know an impartial observer from a non a more, a somewhat more non legal perspective than I am. How do you think he does as part of his initial examination?
0: Uh, struggles, I would say. I, the thing that got me was when he had forgotten that you have to. Is this where he forgot that you have to ask Leading. the judge to approach the well, witness? Well,
1: you has that one, yeah, too.
0: And then it's he leads over and over and Drummond Obviously. just keeps calling him on it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, well, it,
1: you know, uh, I, it made me question, like, did he really get taught some of these things well, in law school? Because he seems as clueless as that would well, be. Well, you're, unless you take a course on trial advocacy, you do not learn this in mainline law school. You do not learn about the process of going to a trial. It is, That's good op, to know. Okay. It's an optional course. <laughs> Got it. Evidence is required. Well, I, evidence, I think, is required. Uh, actual trial advocacy and trial practice are not. Um, and Rudy clearly is relying on television shows for doing this because, he makes obvious junior mistake, lawyer mistake 101 of where he he answers the question in the question he's asking, which is the definition of leading. as a question that could be answered with a yes or no answer where the where you're basically providing the answer in the question. Obviously, that's for verboten. Obviously, it's easy to object to. And he does it like three times before the judge finally almost just coaches him and says, hey, how about you show her the policy? Why don't you, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that does not happen in the book.
1: <laughs> uh, there's several moments of where the judge is very clearly helping Rudy, of where he walks a fine line between being biased. This is one of the first ones of where he basically just tells Rudy the question to ask. Which is not really appropriate, but on the other side it's unlikely to object to it because it's just moving now that the damn was,
0: thing to that See, that's a question I was going to ask you. If you're in Drummond's position and you know, you know you're going up against a freshman attorney... But the judge does that starts to starts to coach him on questions to ask at what point would you break and just go judge i mean come on
1: i write it down for appeal i write down every one of those moments for appeal and i make sure they're in the record because each one of those is providing a basis to indicate the judge was biasing the case
0: but you do nothing in the moment
1: i can object to it in the moment but there's not really anything to object to it's the judge it's the judge being the judge and it's a hard thing to object to for a guy that's going to continue to represent you to continue to preside over the case
0: right yeah you see that's the that, that that that's one of the the implications of my questions i was like you know i kind of think there's a breaking point where you just go judge come on like i mean because i mean we are on rudy's side here well but when he's like why don't you just hand her the policy
1: i remember thinking like well that's inappropriate like he shouldn't say that well what i would do is i wouldn't say it in front of the jury if i really felt like i had the need to call the judge out and maybe being too helpful to a young attorney i'd say your honor may we approach and then just come up to the bench and say very politely that your honor There's been a few moments of when you're providing a little bit too too much advice to the other side. I would respectfully ask that you refrain from doing so. Don't object in open court. Don't embarrass the judge in front of chambers. Just say it very politely in that moment between the two of us and the court reporter, and that's it.
0: And the judge would tell you to fuck off, and then he would probably correct his behavior.
1: Yes, probably almost in those exact (laughs) literal terms. (laughs) But the main thing we get out of this testimony is that he presents her the policy. She identifies it's her policy. He presents her the letter by Everett Lufkin, which is just the perfect asshole name. What a name. Yeah. Uh, She reads it out into the record. He tries to get her to repeat it, which is also improper, but you can understand why he's trying to do that. Um, So that is an objection, right? Repetitive? That is very much an objection. It's very good that Drummond objects to it. Drummond particularly the movie he emphasizes that Drummond's a very good attorney that he's got a loser of a case, but he does a lot to make what he can of it.
0: Yeah. 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 And same in the book
1: and the same thing we see here of where he then confronts, you know, that Rudy leaves the scene. There's a wonderful moment of where Rudy leaves his exhibit up, which is genius. Well done, Rudy, leave your exhibits up as long as possible. And the other side asks to take them down because sometimes they'll be yep. dumb enough and keep up your exhibits during their part of the, their part of the testimony. Um, but D- Drawn confronts Miss Black on the main thing that he can't. About A, what are you gonna do with this money? That doesn't really go anywhere. She says she's gonna donate it. and I think I really do believe her that she intends to donate the money. Me too. But he hits her on your policy says it won't cover experimental procedures and your own doctor, your own doctor said that even this experimental procedure you want, which apparently a bone marrow transplant was, a debatably an experimental procedure in early '90s. Not that way more, but
0: f- yeah, that is interesting. And I bet Grisham wish he had had that one
1: back, right? Because
0: he just happened to pick something that became super mainstream.
1: Now, like he, he's right that then it was much earlier on; it was much more experimental. It's still seven thousand a year, so it's not that weird. But sure, but there's fine. way
0: more of them now. Way more. Oh yeah, I'm gonna m- um, look it up.
1: Yeah, but. What really his main gun he brings to bear is that didn't your own doctor tell you that a bone marrow transplant wouldn't help? Even this experimental procedure, which isn't covered, didn't your own doctor say that the kind of leukemia he had wouldn't work? And she perjures herself on the stand. She doesn't mean to. She says the kind of thing that everybody does when they're confronted with something that they're caught off guard by, where she tells a mild lie, but she says, no, he didn't say that. He didn't say it like that. And Drummond, good attorney the is, has the letter. It's been admitted into evidence. She should have been prepped on this by Rudy, that he was gonna ask this question, but clearly she wasn't. That he shows her the letter. Isn't this your doctor? Isn't this what your doctor said? Didn't he tell you that this wouldn't have helped him? So why did she just lie to me? How can this whole court trust you now that he's lied? It's brilliantly done on his part. He fully he discredits her testimony. He takes away what is otherwise a very powerful moment from Rudy. And he does it expertly because this guy is a good attorney. He's a corrupt criminal asshole, but he's good at his job.
0: Um, There's actually still not that many bone marrow transplants.
1: Really? How many? How, yeah,
0: how, it's like by like five thousand, seven thousand, so something like that.
1: Hasn't increased that much, if anything, it may have decreased. So it's still, weird. It's much more accepted in the medical field. So sure. Um, now what's interesting here too is that. The, well, I, I, I got I to gotta, I gotta dial one thing back. I was criticizing Rudy a little bit that he didn't prepper on this previously, but Rudy does object to this, trying to say that, I, you know, I object. That, you know, he's leading the witness, which is so dumb. So dumb. That's so junior attorney.
0: And, yeah, and he explains, well, it's his cross. You can lead the witness.
1: Exactly. Way. You have to lead. You're supposed to lead. Never give a cross-examination witness the opportunity to just answer what they want. And then Rudy says, oh, they didn't disclose that evidence. And the attorney very correctly points out, I don't need to. This is to undermine credibility. I didn't know she was going to lie. I had this handy in case she did. That's very true. You don't have to disclose those exhibits in advance. It's a quirk of the law a lot of people forget. So Rudy's caught completely with his pants down. Drummond hits a hell of a haymaker on what was probably meant to be one of his best witnesses. And... There's not really much that um, that Rudy can really say about this. So, well, yeah, that's just kind of in the moment. It's a rough moment for Rudy that he clearly is showing that he, skilled though he is, is not an experienced trial lawyer. And he's being caught at the whims of one that it is. I'm, mm-hmm. pretty, I'm pretty sure we go from here to... An incredibly dangerous, unnecessary moment for Rudy to engage in in the middle of a trial, of where what is what is Rudy? What do Rudy and Claire Danes decide they're going to do? While she knows she's on the hideout from Cliff, who damn near beat her to death, they decide that they're going to go to their house or their apartment and get her stuff.
2: Ooh,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, and this
0: is this is exactly what they do in the book too. This it, is not the, they, they, this is not like a I know this is not something dumb that the characters do it, it, as a means to condense something in the book. It's just dumb. They do the dumb thing in the book too. You go with a couple police officers.
1: You can go with police officers. They'd come, especially since she's been in the hospital from this yes. fucking guy. You don't go in this solo. You, Phil, bring a couple police officers and a you know a, an officer of the court just to observe this for further notes. Instead, they go in solo, because they don't see that he's there, and of course he comes back, and does one hell of a brawl happen, of where Cliff has essentially got murder in his eyes. Bree Straits pulls objects off walls to crush Rudy with, and damn near gets close to killing him, but enough of a distraction occurs from Claire Danes that Rudy's able to get the upper hand, and proceeds to deliver some mighty whacks with an aluminum baseball bat to the side of this guy's head, which is appropriate, given that that was his main tool of abusing Kelly in the past. However, the guy's mostly just dazed. Probably has a serious brain injury, but he's not dead. But, Kelly, Claire Danes, decides, Rudy, you need to leave now. You weren't here. Don't tell anybody you're here. I got this. We'll talk more later. This is one of the moments where Rudy realizes that, oh, shit, there's some steel in this person after all, as well as being just utterly scared out of his own mind. And as he closes the door, we very distinctly hear a few whacks of the bat. So in
0: the book, Ru- she does not do that. Yes. Ru- it is clear that Rudy has killed him. Yes. And she says, you need to leave. She does this as a way to protect Rudy. She covers in the
1: evidence, book. effectively.
0: Yeah. Saying like, if it's, if they say it's me, No one's her in her her mind. If they say it's me, no one's gonna say shit to me for doing it. Yeah. Well, little does she know that that's maybe long run, but you still get arrested. Like she was completely not. She thought in the book, like, give me the bat, you leave. Um they'll just they'll just come by and just take the body and be like okay it's cool but like when she actually goes to jail for this mm-hmm. in the book it seems to completely blow her away now she holds
2: tight she holds, she holds tight line. she
0: holds tight and she does not say it was rudy and then eventually the da does decide not to press charges same thing in the movie but it does surprise her that she ends up in jail for a few days. Uh,
1: They seem to shift a bit of her worldly, a bit of the worldliness of Ruby onto her when it comes to this in the movie of where she seems a bit more together and seems like this is much more her plan necessarily than his is when it comes to this decision here at the end. Um, Yeah. And seems she's much more aware about what's going to happen. Um, But yeah, that plays out and Rudy runs. It has to come in terms of the fact that he effectively just contributed to the murdering of somebody. Self-defense. Clearly he'd clearly get off himself. But that he then left her there to her fate while he ran away, and as she's hauled away by the police, and even confronted seemingly by uh, by her husband's dad as she's being hauled, she's being put in the police car.
0: So, question for you: You know the law and stuff. What man? What a broadcaster I am!
1: How do you like that question? I know the law and stuff.
0: stuff. Um, What do you? You're Rudy. You just whack this guy a couple times to get him to get the hell off of you, and then she says, "Give me the bat, leave." I mean, what do you what do you do here? What's the move?
1: I don't know. I'd like to think I would never be put placing myself in a situation where that could happen. Um, well,
0: sure, yeah, yeah. You would have you came with the police, which you know, you know, smart. But let's say you lo- let's say you just found your, boom, lo- you, boom, smash cut, you're dropped in there.
1: Likely, I'd be almost in the same same situation to Rudy, of where he almost looks concussed during this happening. He's so full adrenaline blaring, not thinking straight, that the first time, the first moment someone says something to him that's vaguely coherent, he just goes, yeah, sure. I'm not even sure how much he's even thinking really in that given moment. He's just so in over his head. And yeah. I might be in a similar mindset when I just literally helped beat a guy to death. That I don't know what's happening. I know what's happening. You want the bat? Sure. I, I need to leave. Okay. Just. But what's the smart legal move? Smart legal move is almost exactly what he did. In terms of leave.
0: So to let let her do it?
1: Let her do it. Let her be the focus of it. She's got a history of being a battered wife. He's got a history of trying to fucking kill her. It's a beating with the own aluminum bat. There's no reason for you to be there. You being there just so monstrously complicates what otherwise is a slam dunk ruling rec- recognition by the um, local prosecutor that obviously this was justifiable homicide. We're done. Go away. Okay. All right. Makes sense because if Rudy if they, Rudy's there, it can't wrap up like that. Because why? Why was he there? Why did you bring him? Oh, there? Oh yeah, they have to. Were do, you yeah, yeah, having that makes an sense.
0: affair? It'd be a long investigation. Why did
1: Rudy? Yeah. Why did Rudy have a gun? Were you there to kill him? Was this a plan? Did you arrange this? Did you hire this? It complicates things so much more than it needs to. So it's a okay. it's a good call by her and good one that Rudy went along with.
0: All right, you hear that, kids? If you're ever in that I'm situation, not saying Uncle, Sp- that. Uncle Spencer says, "Not <laughs> saying that."
1: <laughs> <laughs> Next, we cut back to the courtroom, and we've got Everett Lufkin on the stand, who is just an illustrious asshole. And Rudy confronts him over two things. He confronts him over the letter, which Lufkin does the best he can to work around that. Not much he can really say about it; it's already in evidence. Uh, I think he just says that ah, I was I was stressed, which sure. Next thing he asks him is about Jackie Lemanchik, who is going to be important going forward. Of where is like. What happened to her? Eh, she resigned. She resigned two days before I was going to d- depose her, right? Yeah. You fired her, didn't you? Nope. She resigned. Uh, Rudy does a good job. We're already seeing that Rudy's starting to learn more about procedure. He refreshes the witness's memory. He gets in, gets in the key bits of evidence. Uh, he acquires a bit more information about what exactly occurred, but it's kind of still a brick wall because he doesn't have her or know where she is. And he doesn't have the resources to just send out a, send out a public bulletin to find her. Luckily he's got deck and deck finds her what in a day yeah
0: yeah deck deck i mean dude deck is so good Yes, like he like deck i would feel like if you are starting a law firm um i mean the value for money for this guy what you're having to pay him and what he's bringing in—I mean, he is—he is, he oh, is an really? MVP caliber. Absolutely, uh, that that value for money ratio
1: off the charts. De- Deck is the example of like how the military is run by sergeants. Deck is not an attorney; he's technically he's technically staff, but he is running the damn firm. And Rudy's just got along for the ride to a certain degree. Rudy gets more in control as time goes on, but particularly now, but Deck yep. finds her, finds what hospital she's at, finds her, gets in touch with her, and arranges it with her to meet Rudy. And here's where we find a bit, the movie cuts down a lot on this, a bit of what Great Benefit was doing. To summarize, they, as an insurance company, put together a policy which is in place by which they deny all claims. All claims on the initial, as a matter of course, under the assumption that most people aren't going to refile or ever talk to an attorney. And so they'll be able to pocket a colossal amount of money they otherwise would be obliged to pay just by being offering round one round one one to start and then hmm. having kind of warring departments over the issue since so they're getting denied by different departments and nobody knows who to call they make it difficult so most people just go away and they go away some people die some people disappear some people just cancel their policy and find a new one but most people don't fight and they play the averages that ultimately what they're gonna have to pay in quick settlements is a fraction of what they're going to save by doing this and it seems like she has no small amount of guilt as to what role she played in this process that she was a claims handler she was the initial line she was the person who probably sent, you know, six of whatever letters that dot black got rejecting her claim and she's now out of it not due to her own will it seems like she was kind of all, as we find out during her testimony later she was essentially told she was going to be either fired or she could accept a package of money to stay silent and disappear, which she chose to accept. We go to her testimony the next day, which is a surprise. Drummond tries to object to this and starts to be a little successful at first, but your man Deck steps in to save the day by pointing out that she is on the witness list and under the rule of evidence, because she has been disclosed in that manner, the fact she wasn't produced is irrelevant. The other side could have found her easily. Or could have tried to find her just as easily as our side could have. So she gets on the stand. She explains the great benefit conspiracy, how they've made millions doing this, how it's an utterly bastard organization that needs to die. And it ends in a great note for Rudy. For the jury is just utterly caught off guard. They can't believe this is actually official policy that they were doing this. The other side... Jot Black is almost on the verge of tears as she's just seeing every prior assumption and belief she had about this company just proven. And it looks like Rudy's won the day. But his opponent's Drummond, and Drummond's good at his job. So Dr- yep. Drummond brings to bear three things against this woman. One, he undermines her credibility. Hey, weren't you having affairs with senior executives? And aren't you pissed at them and great benefit based on what happened to you? Oh, you are pissed, right. Pissed enough to lie, Maybe. I know. Where'd you get that claims handling file? Because that wasn't part of the record previously. Oh, you stole it? In fact, you signed a settlement that we had to return all documents and stay silent afterwards? You signed a confidentiality agreement, which you're now in breach of? He thoroughly undermines her credibility. He even gets the actual physical record struck from the record as stolen documents, as stolen evidence that was improperly admitted it's a beautiful masterstroke of a rebuttal that undermines her testimony entirely and realistically the judge would have almost basically turned to, turned to the jury and said you will delete any memory of that testimony happening or delete any memory of that evidence being presented in the record because that's effectively what so, he does. Yeah, in
0: the, so they portray Drummond as much more competent yeah. in the movie than the book. In the book, he kind of stumbles with her because he... Does point out that um, you know she's in breach of the confidentiality agreement that she signed. But then she he starts this sort of like, well, aren't you, weren't you committed? Aren't you struggling with like alcohol and this stuff, right? Yep. So he goes down the path of trying to like show her show her as some sort of like unreliable witness because of all of her personal demons, and she brilliantly goes yes sir I am being treated for alcoholism because
1: of of you when I was at
0: great benefit I was coerced into sexual favors with executives and that has been traumatic for me so she actually turns it on his head yeah and starts talking about all of the sexual abuse that she dealt with with these executives Hmm. when he starts to hit her on being institutionalized being an alcoholic and he actually she hits him so hard that he does the abrupt stop. I mean, I know you have seen this in court, right? Yeah, you had to have. Where a witness, a witness answers a little bit too, too well. You, sh- you shuffle the documents. Some, you look down. Score some points, and then the person just goes, "No more, no further questions." Yeah,
1: just I'm done. <laughs> uh, now here, no. Dr- here Drummond again. The movie portrays Drummond much more competently, and he does a very yep. much a master smoke of rebutting another what could have been deathly witness for their cause, and even gets the key evidence thrown out. But once again, who is there to save the day? A mix of Dick and, actually, oddly enough, Bruiser. Of where Dick has Bruiser's emergency contact number. Because, of course, he does. And we get to, we get a call to Bruiser on, I'm assuming, some island in the Caymans. Some some yeah, Caribbean island somewhere. Right, you'll see, if you ever read the firm, you'll see that John Grisham loves the Caymans. So, I'm betting it's the Caymans. Um, and, yeah, I think he even answered the question. Are you here? Eh, I'm here and there. Um, but Bruiser experienced eternity is, particularly on the subject of, uh, you know, um, uh, stolen evidence. evidence, and this is in the era before Westlaw, if we actually have to remember this shit and know how to find it in the actual damn book in the library, remembers a case and remembers roughly where it's located so that Deck can go find it. So that the next day, during the hearing, um, Rudy is able to, uh, bring in this new and additional evidence to help its case. Actually, no, we're going to get there in a second. We, we, we have to wrap up the story with Kelly first. Of where Rudy, Dex, you know, is bragging that he found this evidence. Rudy's pulled away because he needs to go talk with the DA. And the DA, apparently, at talking with Rudy, agrees that Kelly should be released, that she's of no particular threat. Um, and he's able to arrange that it be done. And so she's able to get out based on fully justifiable homicide, which is, honestly, I agree with the decision of the DA, just looking at that, of where there's no way he could win that fight. Battered woman, prior history of violence. He clearly tried to kill her once again. She still got bruises. Fine enough. So
0: the line from the DA in the book, and I think it's the same as the movie, mm-hmm. isn't, this is justifiable homicide, et cetera, et cetera. The line is, I could never get a conviction. I think that's the same in the that's movie what too. He tells. Yeah. That's what he tells. That's uh, what he tells, Rudy. Which I felt like that was an interesting. Like there, that that was a pretty. And maybe this is realistic, but it, that seemed to me like a pretty like um, cold, well, cold way to it, deal with that. It's, it's like not that you weren't guilty. It was I, I couldn't get it. You know, the jury feel bad for you. I couldn't get a
1: conviction. That's very common because prosecutors are incredibly protective of their success of, of their win statistics. Their percentages. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So we cut back to court the next day before we see Deck briefly asking questions of the Great Benefit CEO, which he can't do that. That is not allowed. He previously said... Well, he he mentions earlier on that he faked it a few times. He faked it a few times. He's (laughs) never been caught, but he's briefly doing it because Rudy's late, like really late, like Judge literally points at his watch late. Rudy steps in and he reintroduces the evidence. And in a great moment, he's able to... Go up to the judge they they're, they're, they're talking at the bench they've approached he presents him with the new evidence he has multiple copies the court reporters there rapidly taking notes she stood up in her chair and Drummond has no response because he's completely caught off guard and this is actually yeah. this is actually a legally collective ruling in most states that stolen evidence so long as attorneys don't participate in the theft is perfectly admissible and so long as the attorneys didn't encourage the theft um, right
0: yeah that makes it that makes sense
1: though it ma- makes absolutely absolutely good sense and Drummond has no response to this the judge engages in what is one of several moments of indicating his bias if he turns to Drummond and just smiles at him and says, yep. "Sorry, Leo," which <laughs> again add that to the list for appeal. Um, and he goes, "Yeah, that seems like an
0: unforced error from the judge, it, right? Because it's one of you, you can because you he is wholly within his right to go. No, we can admit this evidence." But by, by being by by using his first name and smirking at him, it was just, you know it just unnecessary. And I would think unnecessarily exposes him to some vulnerable uh, I, positions on appeal. Right.
1: I agree. And there's another scene coming up which we does that again too, of where Rudy presents the you know the full claims handling binder now to the CEO and invites him to turn to the section at the back which has this memo, and reads the memo in open court. Now Rudy does something cute. You may notice this of when he presents the manual to the CEO. He pulls the microphone away from the CEO as he's leaving it. He knocks it a little bit away from him. And Mm -hmm. so after the CEO reads it into the record, he goes forward and pushes it near and says, okay, just, you know, we couldn't hear it on the record. Yeah, say it again. Drummond obviously objects as repetitive, but the judge says, not only overruled, he says, overruled, I want the jury to hear this. Don't do that, judge. Don't do that. You're you're giving. You're, if you, I know you're in favor of one side, but don't show it that much.
0: And the judge can be in favor of one side here as long as they rule impartially. Right. Because there's there's another progression book, A Time to Kill, where the, the judge, Judge Noose, says in chambers to the attorney, hey, I'm on your side here. Don't get me wrong. I'm going to I'm going to call this thing right down the middle, mm-hmm. just so you know, I'm on your side. Well, a judge. Is- and I, from all I could tell, there was nothing wrong with
1: it. A judge can think whatever they want in their heads. They can be biased as much as they want. But when they say it on the record, particularly when they tell it to the jury, the trier of fact, the ones that are voting on it, it's putting yeah. big flashing lights saying, this is important. I want you to pay attention and to this. this. This is important. And this is, and,
0: and this
1: is the right side. Look, the judge already likes this yeah. guy. You know, the, the, the guy must be right. Yeah. That's one of about four moments of where he's given... A little bit of evidence the other side they could try to put forward an appeal. It probably isn't enough, because you can't really say it necessarily resulted in a different a different situation, but it's unnecessary. But he gets it read into the record, he fully gets this guy framed as just an utter fraud, and that this has been Great Benefit strategy, and it's no longer in any way disputable. One of the things he sets out as well is that Great Benefit has denied something like, I don't remember the exact number, but something like 80% of all of their claims are denied regularly yes huge number yeah it's utterly colossal and rudy's not done there rudy has a complete case that is built against the ceo of great benefit right here and now he's brought up the fact that they have a policy in place to regulate deny claims he has statistics about their rate of denial and now the coup de grace he gets the guy to admit that they have a policy they've researched bone marrow transplant clinics and decided hey these are getting well-established and a good investment. We should personally invest money into them going forward. Which utterly undermines their statement about this is experimental technology, we would never consider it, it's a risky investment. All of that is thrown up because they have an existing prior policy investigation on their in putting their own money into these kind of collects. It's a death knell. And it's emphasized by the fact that the camera turns to Drummond. It's one of about three times in the film that we see Drummond react to something. I think he even just puts his head, his, hand, his head in his hand and just says, oh, no.
0: Couldn't you have made the argument, though, that like your investment strategy is divorced from what you believe is actual like a, like a medical opinion? Like you, you could conceivably say like, yeah, those clinics make money, but we still don't know. Like making money doesn't necessarily mean it's good science. We, we're not making a determination on good science. All we're making a determination on is do they make money?
1: Absolutely, you could. The things that would hurt that, in my view, would be a them saying that given that this is now well-established science. They, I think they even say that line and their reasons for why they do the investment. This isn't like you know some experimental. Oh, this that's is that's
0: the kind of the death knell, Yeah, when they yeah. say that line, that's true.
1: It's, this isn't like the, you know they're investing in junk bonds. They're taking an uh, uh, putting money into a startup. They're viewing this like a blue chip. that's not GameStop stock.
0: Sa- <laughs>
1: Hey, GameStop stock—it's a guarantee, right? We're making money. Um, but I love this is one of several moments where we see Drummond just have no response. He even like when Rudy ends his case, the judge turns him and says, uh, "Any, any, any redirect? Like, nope. We're resting on our objections. We have nothing else to say here. We are saving this for appeal." Mm-hmm. Um, and so we really go from there to basically closing arguments. And Drummond's argument is there. It's more talking it's more the classic kind of republican talking point of where if you do this it'll be a it think, think of um it will permanently undermine industry nobody will offer insurance anymore we have to do tort reform prevent these kind of just utter collapse of organized society which fine it's the argument that he can make
0: so there's two things that drummond does or i'm not sure he does it in the movie but he definitely does it in the book but there's two things that he does that makes me want to whatever I'm holding, just throw it against the wall. So the first is, well, you, ca- I mean, this is going to collapse the insurance industry. Right. Like, that argument is such baloney. Uh, excuse my French. Such baloney <laughs> that um, I mean, really, really frustrates me. But in the, the second one, I'm sure you'll hit it, and, and that's
1: later. Oh no, please, go going hit, hit, hit it now.
0: Um. Well. Oh yeah. Well. All right. Well, when he's he makes the the claim that um. You know, basically, it doesn't make sense to give ten million dollars to the blacks. What would the blacks do with ten million dollars? Right.
1: Which that this,
0: and in the book they go even farther to say that ten million dollars <laughs> might actually ruin their lives. Look at lottery winners. Yeah, like been you know, people these, the blacks aren't they're not they're not um, prepared for this kind of, of money. They they won't know what to do with it. Wouldn't it be cruel to even give it to them? Like I mean, it goes so crazy (laughs) and like the idea that like you would you would make a choice on giving this money to the the folks based on like what they would do with it like oh give me a break
1: yeah it's an argument the movie i think trialed in his cross-examination of dot black herself and it just fell like a lead balloon it clearly wouldn't work she clearly had a great response to that question so it's utterly dumb to include that in your closing when you already saw how badly it performed earlier in the case. As for the argument about, you know, this will permanently damage the insurance industry, it's a bullshit argument, particularly when you've got incredibly egregious practices like these just publicly revealed, but it is an incredibly common argument. And this a justification that every legislature puts in place when they start putting in laws that cap the amount of damages that can be awarded against corporations.
0: Oh, you have to protect that. Yeah, let's protect that insurance industry that's really struggling. Give me a break, <laughs> man. Turn me into Bernie Sanders here.
1: And... Rudy then comes in for his closing statement, and he does it perfectly. He expresses the very much personal outrage that he has, that is just almost lack of words for what's going on, and then he transitions it to the single best thing that he could present. I have to believe he previously introduced this in the case, and it's effectively just repeating it, but I don't know that because they didn't show it in the actual movie. But he plays the video deposition footage of effectively the victim of great benefit, of what they did, of the person that they harmed, of the basis of the wrongful death suit, and lets him speak his piece. And it's powerful, it is moving, it is utterly unrebuttable. that this is the life that was ruined. This is the life that was taken away, egregiously by their actions, in a way that can never be made whole, but you can do your part to punish. And... We cut to a moment that every attorney goes through of just waiting outside for the jury to rule. And this is something that is a bit unrealistic of where in movies, juries rule like, you know, in 20 minutes, you're just kind of waiting out. You can actually just wait outside for the jury to come back. Juries can take days to actually rule, particularly given the number of questions the judge also often gives them to individually answer and think about. Sure. But seemingly this is probably a couple hours or whatever else. And we come back for our verdict. And if I remember correctly, the ruling is, on the basis of compensatory damages, is essentially what the cost of the treatment would have been, $150,000, if Great Benefit awarded Appropriate ruling. The jury then gets to award punitive damages, which are, if they decide, when there has been particularly egregious, intentional, or malicious behavior that needs to be punished, that... Honestly, the individual damages here may not equal that amount, but organized society demands its pound of flesh for what you did. And they mm-hmm. award $50 million, which the movie doesn't really explain where they got that figure from. I think the book offers a little bit more explanation of where they got that from. I think
0: they just... I mean, it, the, uh, the um, they just pull it out of thin air. Okay. At the be- but they do it at the beginning. I mean, it's not like... They they ask for $50 million mm-hmm. in the book. Like... But it, it, you know, Rudy in his internal monologue. At least, like, well, we just pulled that out of the air, the, the fifty million. But, um, yeah, but I it, it, it's not like the
1: jury just comes up with the numbers. What I'm saying. Gotcha. And the room erupts. The attorney, the attorneys on the Great Benefit's side, have just utterly no response. They're completely reduced to just silence and intakes of breath. Rudy's just kind of concussed by what just occurred. The Dot Black family has no way of even just expressing their feelings on this. And even when kind of we're building up to this moment during the closing, I actually forgot this because it's another powerful scene, of when the closings are occurring, of when his son is speaking, we get to see the father of the Dot Black family effectively confront the CEO with the picture that Rudy gave him earlier. And I love that scene. It's a very heartfelt scene. I really enjoy the figure, the character of the dad, as little involved as he is, just because the moments that he actually has expressed express himself are incredibly powerful. And it notably leads to the CEO and his trophy wife I'll say running out of the room together so that's a relevant point because after the verdict we get to see the news reports we get to see an interview with what I'm guessing is probably one of Rudy's professors we get to hear people talking about how this is an incredible ruling it's one of the largest in the industry and it's done by a new attorney and they have enough time to briefly discuss the idea that under contingency rules Rudy can get a third of this assuming it's ultimately awarded but Rudy knows how this actually works and even says that well it's not in the bank yet yeah cut to a call the next day
0: now see i did not know how this worked i thought if it this gets awarded like this this is my dumb p brand i thought there's nothing i thought that the company if it the company had value they would they'd sell it for parts before they wouldn't give anything um Uh, so i thought that i i mean i just kind of like i mean i knew i had like 10 pages 20 pages left or whatever but when the ruling came through i thought
1: glory hallelujah Good days are ahead for my man, Rudy. No, unfortunately, a uh, judgment is a judgment will have to go through bankruptcy and potentially receive some basis of award there. Though typically judgments are viewed as unsecured assets or unsecured debt, unsecured creditors, so their ultimate potential to recover much when there are presumably a lot of other people chomping at the bit and probably otherwise, you know, leveraged up to the hilt in debt anyway. Not great, particularly since, as is revealed in this call with Drummond and by news reports. The company was seemingly looted by the CEO when he was trying to flee overseas with his wife. So the amount of assets that they have at play are likely minimal and likely could take even years to filter down to some minimal level of recovery compared to what they actually were awarded. That getting a judgment is fine. Ultimately, collecting on it is an entirely different, is an entirely different animal. And I think Rudy is appropriately sanguine on what the prospects of actually recovering are. Yeah. So Drummond calls them, Uh, he says, you know, I really wanted you to get every dollar of that money, you know, everybody loses here, which has a certain element of truth, I bet he got stiffed on a hell of a lot of his fees too, here in the end of the case, Uh, Mm -hmm. but nowhere near the the $50.15 million judgment that Rudy and gang got. Mm -hmm. And we're really left where we began, of where it's Rudy and Deck kind of pondering what to do next, of where... Rudy, and this is really the main subject matter of both the 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 book and the film, if Rudy now has gotten his first foray and experience as to what the law actually is, he's seen its dark elements, he's seen the process that you actually need to go through to succeed against those kind of things, and he really has to decide now that he actually knows, now that he gained the knowledge that he classically did not actually get in law school, now that he's been schooled about what his profession will require of him to succeed, he has to decide whether that's what he wants, and after everything he's seen and after he's endured, he's really not sure at the end of the story whether that's the future he really wants.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Both because he's seen the unethical, the lack of ethics that is just rife in what his, in his opponents and even his peers, and he also has a different perspective on what matters. That. While he does have the skill and ability to do this in the future and every client that ever comes to him will demand it from him because this is his intro into the legal world, he has Kelly and she's going to require a lot of focus of him for a while just to make that relationship work and to be able to work the timing that that would require versus the timing that the legal profession would demand of him. He needs to pick a different way of expressing it, which he ponders both in the book and the movie the idea that maybe he'd prefer to teach it, maybe he'd prefer to go back into the illustrious institution that is the legal school, and deal in the delight and sublime study of law rather than the vulgar practice. And the movie kind of ends on that kind of both hopeful, it's 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 an interestingly hopeful moment in the sense that he has gotten nothing in the end. He got what Doc Black wanted. He did right by his client. She destroyed this evil corporation, which all she, really she ever wanted. The money would have just been a cherry on top of the cake, a cherry on top of the sundae, rather than what she was actually in this for. But for Rudy, he's got nothing in the bank, at least in the movie. You in the book, he has other clients. He has no clear prospects of the future. He's got all this potential, but he doesn't necessarily want it. But it's a certain kind of freeing moment of where he understands now, he has perspective, he has succeeded and he can pick his own path in a way at the beginning of the story he couldn't. And that's a hopeful moment. But the movie particularly ends with him kind of just sharing this moment with Deck, where Deck's now kind of picking his own path, where maybe he'll retake the bar, maybe he'll decide his own future, but as Rudy looks down at him, he just kind of sees him run off into the street like the shark that he is, and it almost just further doubles down on what his own thoughts of the law are. Right, but that ends our tale. Uh, over the course of this recap, we discussed a lot of the changes book to show, but I think there are a few more that we wanted to go through.
0: Yeah, I mean the, the big one. So the the couple real big ones here are um, the character of Booker, which is his buddy and from law admitted. school. Completely omitted. They completely got rid of him. Booker, it, it, the the judge. And how the judge acts in favoring Rudy makes a lot more sense in the book because Booker has a line to the judge. So Booker is hired to the same law firm that that attorney is working before he's appointed to the to the bench. So. uh, Booker has a line to him. And, you know, Booker also is an important character in the book because he is a stabilizing force for Rudy. Rudy does not start out working for Bruiser in the book. Instead, he has another job with another law firm that gets purchased. He goes to the company that purchased it, um, and they tell him, oh, yeah, sorry, kid, we didn't have a space for you. We had no more spaces for associates. Um, Rudy kind of, go ahead.
1: Isn't that Drummond's firm, too, if I remember that correctly?
0: Um, I don't think it's Drummond's firm okay um i think it's an it may be but it, it, i mean it could it may as well be right it's to it, say it's a it's a good point because it's kind of all the same thing to rudy right yeah it's those those big, big law. flashy law firms yeah and he makes a big point of saying he went to school with these folks and there's like a number of moments in the book where he's like at bars or he's out and about and he sees the kids that have the the numbers behind their name i think is what he says you know the the, 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 the you know Joe, blah, 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 third, junior, esquire, you know, that, that whole thing, basically these people who, who were born into that system and filtered up into those law firms. And he always viewed himself apart from that booker. Uh, but anyway, back to, he goes to this law firm and he, he finds out that the law firm that bought the little company that he was going to work for, has no space for him. He mm-hmm. kind of acts the fool as he leaves. He like knocks yeah. over. He, like, knocks over a piece of art. I think he breaks it. He yells at some people. Not a great moment for our man Rudy. And what does he do? He goes to Booker and Booker's wife, and they, like, cook him a nice meal. And he stays on the, their couch while the police are looking for him. <laughs> um, so Booker's, like, a real stabilizing force for Rudy. Um, so that Booker is one big change. The second big change is that he doesn't he doesn't work for Bruiser. He actually ends up in a position where he doesn't have a job. <laughs> and uh because this law firm purchased the law firm he was going to work at and the guy he who owns the bar that he's tending bar at sets him up with bruiser and it's really like a sort of last ditch thing it's right. obviously like he, he's just completely out of money
1: which is closer um, closer to what we see in the film it's just the film kind of cuts at that first pretty substantial part of the book to just jump to okay he's with bruiser now
0: i mean it takes like 150 pages in the book for him to get to Bruiser, so it there is a lot beforehand um, I would say the third big thing is that in the book uh, Donny Donnie Ray black has a twin
2: yeah
1: this is a big detail in the book
0: and the, the you know so it's more you know the, the fact that great benefit denied a claim that killed a person is much more cut and dry in the book because Donnie Ray has a twin who could have been a donor right and the the, the doctors like check it all out and vet it and they they all all the any all the doctors even the doctors who are, uh, um, who are testifying for great benefit admit that the twin is a donor, a potential donor for right. the uh, the bone marrow. So it's, it, you know, having that twin and having them as a potential donor for bone marrow, donating, Ray in the book just further cements the fact that it really, it was just one procedure that would have saved this kid's life. Everything was lined up yeah, except it, for the funding. It, okay? it, so they, they were just, they just needed that funding.
1: It, um, and, it, yeah. And it, it moots any argument by the great benefit that you know. Well, it wouldn't have mattered if we didn't if we if we'd given him the funding. He would have died anyway. We wouldn't have found a donor. The procedure doesn't work. It just kills that argument entirely because one of the biggest problems of getting a bone marrow transplant is finding your perfect match. If you've already got that guy right there, you've already got your genetic duplicate. That problem is solved. So
0: I would, yeah, that egg, absolutely. Uh, anything else on on the on the twin?
1: No, I I, I think it's it's an. The movie necessarily has to engage in a lot of um, consolidation to make it work, to make it fit into what's already a pretty fair, pretty long runtime. And so it's an interesting cut, but I think it's understandable because it's not one that's inherently necessary to understand just that great benefit is a dick. It just kind of multiplies that rather than serves as a foundation for it.
0: Of all the cuts, I probably would have, everything they cut... If there, there was one thing I had to pick to, to actually make it to the film, it probably would have been the twin. Yeah, uh, I understand why they cut it, but I mean that was one of them where I felt like it made a little bit more sense to possibly include that one. That hopefully that was one of the last things on the cutting room floor. <laughs> uh, the the the, the court. Um, proceedings took a heck of a lot longer in the book. There were more witnesses. There was more. Testimony. Realistically so. Yeah. Yeah. There was just a lot more going on. It was a lot more detailed. And, you know, you're in Rudy's head the whole time. So you're getting every single beat of, of all the happenings going on. Um, and then I would say that the other biggest, the, the last thing that was really changed was, I think that when they got John Voigt, they said, you know what, let's play to John Voight's strengths. Mm-hmm. Because there are a lot of moments where Drummond in the book is not the dignified, put together, always got the right answer, yep. unflappable guy. He he gets mad. He huffs. He complains. He'll he'll throw things. Like He's he, a one time he was in judges. He was in judges chambers and he actually threw something. And you know the judge you know offered, uh, I think, to find him in like contempt or something. Um, sure. If he would did it again. Uh, he, you know, there's also a moment where in the book, which I thought was really good, it would have been so hard to replicate on the screen where. When they're talking about that other annex in the back of the manual, the Great Benefit manual, mm-hmm. it's like a Section U or something.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It is very clear in the book the way it's introduced and the way that Rudy uh, brings it in into the courtroom and, and talks about it that Drummond had no idea that that, that annex existed yeah. in that manual. It was never given to Drummond to even look at. So when it was introduced in court, um, it... It's it, it floored Drummond, but more than surprised him and the, this might be something that you can speak to. It made him mad. Mm-hmm. He was very, very angry at his client. And by yeah. the end of this thing, Drummond was done with great benefit. Mm-hmm. Like, he wasn't speaking to them. He was like he was being more, he was more warm to Rudy right toward the end than he was to the client that he was dealing with because the client had lied to him and put him in a position to fail so many times.
1: Yeah, and I think that is much more emphasized in the in the, in the book than it is in the film. I think the film implies that Drummond's almost an equal partner in this. That he's, He may not know some of the precise details for what was there, but I think he'd been advised about what they were trying to cover up. At least that's kind of the implication I got.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, where It's pretty clear in the book that the cover-up is happening absent Drummond. Drummond is kind of doing his best. Now, Drummond's a blowhard. I'm not trying Absolutely. to say that he's, he's portrayed sympathetically, but it is very clear. And, and there are moments in Rudy's mind where Rudy says, you know, I almost felt sorry for the guy. Because he's looking over and he can tell that Drummond is so pissed at his client because Rudy's yet yet again introduced something else that blindsides Drummond and actually looks terrible for Great Benefit. Mm-hmm. I actually like that part of the book much much better. I like the portrayal of Drummond better. I get why they did it the way they did it in the film, and I do think that John Voight does a great job. But you know, just for intaking the story, it, it it's a it's a lot more fun watching Drummond squirm and struggle and huff and puff and spit and yell in the book than it is watching you know the very articulate John Boy just stand up there and just sort of deliver line after line um, I will also say the last thing on that point is that Drummond in the film scores a lot of points when you're he watching does. the film you're thinking there's moments where you're thinking that like Rudy might lose mm-hmm. because Drummond is scoring so many points in the book, Drummond scores zero points. It is pretty clear the entire time that Rudy's going to win this thing. I don't remember any scene in the book where Drummond actually lands a punch. So that, that's a that's a big difference, too. It's it's pretty clear in the book all the way. I mean, you're reading it and you're like, everything is lining up spades for Rudy in mm-hmm. the book. Everything. And you keep thinking, what is, what, you know, what uh, tower of cards are going to fall down for this poor kid? <laughs> and it just never does. Get it close. You know, and that's kind of that's kind of the the ultimate surprise of the book, right? Is that you're expecting a surprise and you never get one. It ends up being a pretty straightforward case where Rudy just kicks their ass. And that's what it yeah. is.
1: Yeah. Really the the biggest two, you know, rug pulling moments for Rudy are a not being able to ultimately enforce the judgment. The great benefit is utterly eluded. That's not something he could have predicted, that's not something he would have any basis for any knowledge on going in. So that is a bit of a rug pulling moment at the end. I think, uh, honestly, the, the big one is just a kind of loss of innocence as to the practice of the law. Because he got into the law with just the utter best of intentions, inspired by civil rights lawyers, looking to really change the world to be a better place, and he got to see it here at its most base. And it kind of scares him off the law, and I almost wonder to a certain degree whether it's a little bit of John Grisham bleeding in there with his own opinions of the law, given that he ultimately left the practice.
0: Well, doesn't that happen, I mean, isn't that kind of a rite of passage? You know, we, we think we talk about, like, um, you know, the rite of passage of, you know, going to law school in your first year, you're super excited and yep. everybody's kind of in it all together and you make a bunch of friends and by the third year, everybody hates each other. They're ripping chapters out of books <laughs> in the library. They're stepping on each other's heads to try to get to an internship or a job offer or whatever. Isn't it kind of a rite of passage that once you get out, you pass the bar, you get a job, you start practicing the law that within two or three years you get disenchanted? Because pretty much every lawyer I've talked to has had the same deal where – like I think you even you, – you wanted to be like an environmental lawyer, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, the downturn in the economy killed that one in a heartbeat. But you, So it's like – I feel like that happens to a lot of lawyers. It is a very much as you, a, good, a good term, rite of passage. I referred to it as communal hazing when I was going up, but it, it is very much something a lot of attorneys go through. It leads to a lot of attorneys leaving the practice fairly quickly um, or at least finding a different niche than what they were really expecting. I don't think the law is unique in that regard. I think everybody, once they get out into the real world and leave school, are kind of confronted with how their aspirations and hopes aren't exactly squaring with reality, I think it's just a much harder fall in the law. And I don't think law school particularly helps that, given the, the kind of rose-tinted glass view it gives you of, the, of, the, of what the law is like.
0: Okay, so that is ultimately the, the big differences that I, I saw in the book as opposed to the film.
1: And we really come now to... I think every every podcast we do requires you to have your own God Emperor moment of where there's a segment of which you are the Lord and have this sole decision as to what wins and doesn't. You get to decide now which adaptation you prefer. Book versus movie. If you had a gun to your head, which would you pick and why?
0: I would like to preface this for everybody listening at home. That I am not the guy that sits here and tells you the book is better. I am not book is better guy. I think Game of Thrones is better than A Song of Ice and Fire. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of visual adaptations, whether it be TV, whether it be film, um, are better than the written version. I mean, I guess number one with the bullet is Godfather, but you can go down the list. There's a lot of them. So don't pigeonhole me as the guy who always says the book is better, because I do not. In this case, the book is better. Now, this is a... fine film. Mm -hmm. It's a very it's a very nineties film. In the sense that in the sense that the sets are small. Um they spent a lot of money on big name actors as opposed to you know big sets and special effects and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. They jump into the story really fast. There's no threat of a sequel. I mean it's it's a type of storytelling that we really don't get a lot anymore. I mean, now if you're going to make a film like this, you would have big sets, you'd have big you'd have big downtown areas that you're filming in with, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, really huge shots. You may not spend a lot of money on the actors to get big name actors, instead you would you put a lot into the production. And you probably would make it a much much longer film. It's already a long film. But, I mean, my God, you know, the latest Scorsese film was like four hours. I mean, they probably would have made it a lot longer because, you know, some of the stuff that, that to me does, doesn't does feel earned, like his immediate kinship with Kelly. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think that's I don't think that's uh, germane to me. I think a lot of modern audiences would feel like that was rushed because most of our films are a little bit slower paced now and longer. So um, good film. It's kind of like a a, a, a little bit of um, nostalgia in that what movies used to be that you could just go get a big tub of popcorn, be in it for two hours, and be out with a good story. But ultimately, guys, um, I'm I'm looking at the trade paper back here. 598 pages. I understand that's a bit of an investment, but it's Grisham. By God, it goes fast. Read the book. It's better than the movie. That's my opinion.
1: And I think it's telling that this is honestly one of the last major Grisham adaptations that... The, it, he made, the, his adaptations in terms of the firm a time to kill they made a lot of money. Buga brief, mm-hmm. brief 2. this one barely made it back its budget, and since then there have been very few of his legal dramas that have been subject to, to a, an actual main film that i I think it'd be a hard sell nowadays to you know put forty million dollars like in this film towards a budget to adapt to, to adapt one of his works because I don't think they work as well for a a modern audience in terms of what uh, producers are looking for for what's going to be their new successful franchise so i did some looking into this to see are
0: there any new any john grisham adaptations in the works and the only thing that's really out there is a book called the partner and they're thinking about making it like a mini series on fox yeah and i feel like that makes a little bit more sense i think if the rainmaker was written tomorrow and you know hollywood looked at the story and looked at the book I think they would be. it would be a Netflix eight-episode series way before it would be a movie that was released in theaters.
1: And, and I think if they were doing it again, they'd probably do a t- the uh, focus on A Time to Kill because it would just naturally lend itself to multiple seasons. So or first season's A Time to Kill, and then the next two seasons are following the continual, essentially sequels to that plot. Um, yep. Whereas yep. this one is so almost aggressively one-off this is a self-contained story and it's done. It's meant to be done. It's not meant to have a sequel. It's meant to kind of There's end no on this biggest point
0: thing else and he 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 follows a lo- he writes books and he loves to go back to those worlds and he's never touched the world of Rudy Baylor again nor nor should I think he, you know, do. I mean, literally rides off into sunset with the girl. <laughs> literally. Yes. Literally. <laughs>
1: um
0: there is a, you know, they, John Grisham did release a like a third sequel to A Time to Kill called A Time for Mercy. I've read it. And um, Matthew McConaughey, who played Jake Bridgance in Time to Kill, is talking about uh, potentially being interested in coming back. So we might get another right. adaptation yet, Spencer. But right. you're right. It, I feel like the type of story he tells set up well for the type of movies that you know, we liked to intake in the '80s and the '90s, and it's just kind of not what Hollywood does anymore.
1: No, you're not going to make a 35 film franchise based on John Grisham anymore. I don't think the man's written 35 books, so it, it's a harder sell nowadays than it used to be. Unless you're going with a much more art house, or as you said, TV production. TV is the refuge of the '90s movie.
0: Absolutely. Now let's cut to real lawyer, fake lawyer. Damn straight. Because I have some questions about oh, the law. Oh, please, for you, Spencer. please. All right. So my first one. Well, I let me let me back up. I have questions for you as a lawyer. Some okay. of them might be about the law. Some of them might just be about you as a practicing lawyer. And I just want your perspective. So the first one is Rudy gets to court and Bruiser is on his way to the Caymans. Dear God, and yes, he Rudy is not. Doesn't have his license. He's passed the bar, but he does. He's kind of in this weird purgatory. Does not have his license yet. And Drummond stands up and goes, oh, if it please the court, I would like to say, hell dear sir, that my good friend Rudy, he should be allowed to, uh, you know, argue the case. And he stands up for him. Mm -hmm. And somehow this fucking matters. So my question to you is twofold. One, do you, could you do this? Could a, could a judge say, "Okay, you don't have your license yet, but you pass the bar. Go ahead and argue the motion." And two, what did he, who would give? Would anybody give a fuck what the def- what the other attorney thought?
1: Well, it's one of two ways that this can effectively go down. Is that for me when I you know was admitted to practice of the law, say down here in down uh, actually both Virginia and Florida, I went to a swearing-in ceremony. Hundreds of new lawyers all there together, all taking the oath in front of the Supreme Court, all swearing together and getting in that way. That's one way you can do it. The other way you do it is very much like this of where you get an attorney to stand for you some some you know existing licensed member of the bar in that particular jurisdiction and you go in front of a judge and that judge swears you in and has you take the the oath of office or the 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 oath the, uh, the oath of attorney and that's really how it's done you have to pay your dues going forward but that is honestly a pretty accurate small-scale depiction of how a person can be admitted to the bar once you've actually passed the bar itself Okay. Uh, All right. So second... And and I, I also believe it is an incredibly strategic decision by Drummond in the film of where he sees the potentially threatening bruiser is out and this new, freshly admitted to the practice of law attorney who doesn't even know where to stand, who's already getting chewed out by the judge is here saying that he wants to take up the case. Drummond took one look at that and went, Yes, I am backing this. This is my investment in the future of my client help support this guy being the attorney on the case
0: right yeah so that makes sense but i, I just yeah okay well, all right well i think you answered the question that it actually does kind of matter a little bit um well you, you know that
1: if you're yeah. not if you're if you've only passed the bar you are not admitted yet you are not licensed for practice you have not been approved by the actual state to be a functioning lawyer in there and so as much as it just kind of seems you know almost archaic to have this kind of swearing in ceremony it's a necessary step Gotcha Okay
0: um, Second is just a question about um, You as a lawyer mm-hmm. What What kind of gall does it take <laughs> For Rudy to decide He's just going to take this case on his own And roll with it Insane. Because it just seems to me Yeah, exactly It just seems to me that no lawyer No young lawyer in their right mind Would even have the,
1: the thought To try this uh, much less the follow-through. I mean real I mean I w- I would say realistically, but there are plenty of attorneys that are just insane enough to do this. But one thing Rudy could have done was effectively shop his case to another firm to partner with him to do to to invest a lot of the capital and help without the legwork. Because were it not for this perfect judge that he gets, the other side could have just buried him in discovery and in procedure and drawn this out for years. And Rudy would have gone effectively bankrupt even just trying to litigate the case and not been able to continue with it just because he doesn't have the finances to support him. But Rudy has the advantage of having a judge judge that fast-tracks the case and has his back to support him to make it practical and possible. Otherwise, A, it's insane. He has no knowledge of procedure. He has no background in the case. He has no experience doing any of this. I think the film and book imply that he's never even taken a trial advocacy course. Nope. So if I was in his position, would I have done the same? Hell no. I would have been worried that I would have been so utterly inept that I would have been later subject to sanctions for myself for failing to adequately represent my client. But through a mix of not having any other choice within his own head, a certain element of righteous outrage, and just a hell of a lot of drive, determination, and outright bravery, Rudy decides to stick with it. And with no small amount of help from Deck, who's kind of serving as that, you know, partnering with a larger firm thing to provide that kind of expert guidance that he desperately needs. He's able to make it work, but few are the attorneys that in his situation either would have done it or could have done it.
0: Okay. Um, So final question. Um, How quickly would someone, how quickly would deck be in legal trouble the way he operates? (laughs) Would it be two weeks or would it take five years? Because I feel like at some point deck's going to get completely busted. Longer for this. I mean, than hell, he's you even, think. Hell, the man's even like when Rudy doesn't get there, he starts questioning the witness. <laughs>
1: I know. You that, that, you can't do that. <laughs> That's going to get you in trouble. As cases in front, I mean, for example, down here in Florida, we have a very active Supreme Court in terms of its willingness to prosecute attorneys. It's one of the more famous in the country in terms of its willingness to just straight disbar attorneys for, mal- for malpractice. Or, or various forms of abusive ethics. Still, if you watch those cases, it can take years. We had an attorney down here that was basically fraudulently filing uh, claims for um, tax surpluses of where, uh, say, say somebody um, has not been paying their taxes. A tax deed can be entered on their property, which later can then effectively go to sale of where the, the property is then sold to pay off that ta- to pay off the tax certificate and a tax deed is created. This guy was faking, was going after are the surpluses that can result from those tax deeds for years by just lying, claiming he had authorization from the actual authorized parties, so, so he could pocket the proceeds. And people knew this. They were reporting him for this. He was being actively investigated for this. And he still did it for five, ten years that Everett going in front of the Supreme Court to actually punish him for it. And he was a practicing attorney. So practice of the law in a lot of ways is very slow, and particularly when it comes to ethical abuses. Somebody will eventually report him, despite how much of a good old boy's club the law can be. But it could be a very long time, and it seems that Deck has very intentionally styled himself as the man behind the scenes. So I can imagine it taking even longer. Because he knows that he's riding the razor's edge. This could easily lead to him falling and and not being able to get up again. But I think he's very much working to protect himself with that knowledge.
0: I'd also like to point out something about Deck that in the book they make a big deal about the de- the fact that Deck has gambling problems.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: He's, an al- he's an alcoholic but he's, he's sober um, and he's, he's in AA which they talk about in the book um, but he also has gambling problems and at the end you know that little that, that sweet moment where uh, in the movie where Baylor uh, Rudy is, is hugging Deck and like okay see ya you know we had a good run bye bye. In the book it's a little darker in that Deck is like yeah I don't really know what I'm going to do now. Uh, I just left the casino this last week and lost every penny I owed. So when we see pe- <laughs> when, when when we leave Deck, he has gambled away every bit of <laughs> money that he has, uh, probably thinking that he's about to get a windfall from this this case that Rudy brought in. Um, and he's he basically is left penniless with no real job prospects. So as much
1: as I like my man Deck, my favorite character of the book, um, not left in a great space. Now I've got two questions for you now because you sir have been practicing a bit of law lately yourself through a more indirect means. So I'm curious as your perspective, if you were a new lawyer in, Rudy, in Rudy's shoes, you ready for these? Fire away. Okay. Question number one, you're confronted with this, with the original judge, the asshole judge, the judge that is just permanently biased against you. You're in Rudy's shoes. You just left that in chambers meeting. What would you have done if that judge didn't die the next day?
0: Well, the first thing I would have done if I was Rudy is I would have shot this case around because I would um, have have thought... Um, that there's no way that I could I could commit the manpower necessary and still pay bills,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, considering the blacks aren't going to pay yet. Yeah, I mean you're no, you're, I you're doing this is just for the payday at the end. So I would have shopped this case around and tried to tried to get use it to get on with a with a good law firm somewhere. All right, second piece I would have done um, is I probably would have just papered the file. You know, when you have a problematic employee, you have a problematic yeah. judge, I would have papered the file for appeal.
1: Gotten because of the way this judge
0: was acting, I would have felt like there's no way I'm going to win this thing. So I would have tried to to do my very best to to argue this thing down the center, knowing that the judge is going to beat the hell out of you. And every time the judge showed favoritism or did something that I did, and I would probably try to, it, to, as much as my meager abilities would have allowed, set him up for failure. Right? I would have asked for things. That would, you know, he maybe should have done, but I would suspect he wouldn't do out of favoritism to Drummond, stuff like that, and I would have papered it for appeal.
1: Yeah, and it's absolutely what you would have had to have done. The judge gives him the possibility of, hey, you can remove this to federal court. You can refile it there if you wanted to, which is definitely an option that Rudy could have gone with. Um, The problem there would have been, well, it depends how the judge dismisses it. If he dismisses it with prejudice or something along those lines, it could potentially bar Rudy's ability to refile, so you'd have to appeal and also, the issue is that federal courts have a kind of connotation that they're more business friendly than state court judges are, that state court judges, given they're much more dealing with their local constituents, tend to favor plaintiffs by comparison, so that could have hurt mm-hmm. him, too. So, yeah, I think you read it right, that the best that you can do is just set it up for appeal, set it up that there was bias, set it up he'd have a legal basis for his ruling when he's probably inevitably going to dismiss the case here shortly, yeah. and just hope that you can survive with how long that could take, because... Even here in Florida, it can take, from the moment you file an appeal, 10 to 18 months before that's resolved, before you can even get back to the trial court to keep fighting, and it would still be in front of that same judge. So, yeah, it's, if you get a judge that's biased against you, it can suck. Because it's hard, it's hard to get away from them. Right. Yep. All okay, right. Second question for you. We have several times in this that Rudy, Rudy receives settlement offers. If you were in his shoes, would you have t- would you have considered them more than he does or would you have made a counter? Cuz Rudy never that we see at least in the movie makes a counter settlement offer that I that I can say.
0: So, um, as I told you, when the 10 million dollar ruling came down, I thought that great benefit was obliged to pay it in some way. I well, didn't f- understand 50 in, film, 50, 50 in the film. 50. Yeah. I didn't know that they could just you know, skirt out on the bill. So, oh. Um, if I knew now, not, 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 not necessarily knowing that they would go bankrupt or that they've been pilfered or anything, but if I knew that if if the ruling, you know, basically what I'm, what I think I'm left with is the knowledge that if the set, the ruling gets too high, you start to decrease the likelihood that you're going to see it.
1: Yeah. Be it either appeal or difficulties in collection. Yeah. That can factor in. So I probably would have.
0: Set, tried to explain this to the blacks and said, "Hey, look, we are really, you know, if we get, if we do get a, let's say, a hundred million dollar ruling, we're probably not going to see a penny of it because it's too high. We'll never collect on it." Why don't we ask him for half a million dollars, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, or I think you know, I think in the insurance industry right now, and it sounds morbid, but I think the the like cost for human life is about twelve million in the insurance industry you, right now. You so better believe the,
1: they got spreadsheets on that shit. Yeah.
0: So maybe I would try to map it to the to the twelve million that's kind of the going right now in the insurance industry, and and I, that's how I would justify it. But I would definitely have made an offer because I would have told them a settlement as opposed to going for this huge amount in a jury trial, is probably our best way to actually see some money here. Yeah. Partic- and of course, I would be thinking selfishly, thinking, well, that's the only way I'm going to see it, my 33%.
1: And, and particularly in the film, or as you noted in the film, Drummond presents a much more thorough and effective defense. So it's, at least going into like the last day with the CEO, it's much more ambiguous about who's ultimately going to prevail.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I would have probably tried. I mean, I, if I was a lawyer, um, you know, I was, I was litigating these cases i mean i I probably would go for settlements more often than not only because i would say hey look what's our goal here our goal is to be made whole for what happened and we can do that through the settlement process we don't necessarily have to go through this big long you know jury trial that's a lot more uncertain
1: and that's how most cases resolve particularly in insurance with respect to the insurance industry is that plaintiff's insurance attorneys their main objective is the settlement because Practically speaking, they don't have the resources to fight it all the way to trial, particularly when they're not when they're on a contingency basis and they're not getting paid for their efforts. So a quick settlement is from their perspective ideal for them and usually ideal for their clients, because it avoids the risk and gets them money now, even if it's not as much money as they want. Yeah, absolutely. Now Last question I've got here, and this is just more of an open-ended one, but you know, watching a legal drama, and I would I would represent that this film is beloved in the legal in the legal industry as being one of the most accurate depictions of trial work that you can find on on the big screen. Is there a single moment or a couple moments that most surprise you is about how the law works that you see portrayed in this film?
0: Oh man, that's a really good question. Um... So the the you know the collecting on the settlement that uh, you know, we've already talked about that, but that yeah. did surprise me. Um,
1: wait,
2: wait,
0: wait, I we, would say some of the just the technicalities around how you talk to witnesses. Oh yeah, surprised me. I mean, I, you know, it's always sort of portrayed as you know if you're a good lawyer, you just sort of ask questions as if you're just like a like a like a newspaper reporter or something. Mm-hmm. Where this this film makes it very clear that there are parameters, and you have to do that. And yeah, it actually, probably takes a lot a lot of Training and a lot of reps to get used to asking the questions in the way you're supposed to ask him at specific times, without you know go you know without leading or doing all these things that can that can go off the rails. So that surprised me a little bit, and I would also say that um, it surprised me how effective ambulance chasing was portrayed. <laughs> Because especially in the book, it really kind of seems like – and you tell me if I'm wrong here. But it really kind of seems like if you want to go that route, there's money there and you're probably going to make it. Like you're probably going to make some money if you just hang around hospitals and talk to people who have been in car wrecks and tell them that, you know, like you can can get them like, you know, whatever the the normal settlement amount is. You're probably going to make some money doing that. And I just – I never really – I guess I'd never given it a lot of thought, but I never really considered the fact that like – Ambulance chasing is like a, like a real profession and like a real way to make some money. Not Maybe not like the most money ever, but certainly a living.
1: One thing I think that really affects on the first thing you pointed out there is that so much of legal dramas that are shown on the screen are depicted from the plaintiff's perspective. And so inevitably when you see them like examining a witness, it's always cross. It's always examining the defendant's witness. You rarely see them like, you know, going through the process of introducing their own exhibits. And so you don't see that as much. And so actually seeing it on the screen and seeing the necessary dance you have to go through in terms of getting your own evidence in and listing your own testimony before you can ever cross-examine the other side when all the exhibits you're going to rely on are already in place and all the testimonies already occurred. It's kind of new. and It's kind of weird. You don't see it that much.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, Okay. I think we have hit our... um, We've hit our segments. We've hit the recap. Spencer, we've done it. We have introduced a new... Uh, a new segment here, or a new a new branch of uh, of pods for Mangum Talks TV, which is the John Grisham adaptations. I've really enjoyed this, so Let's let's give it um, let's give it a, a letter grade. Let's give the movie a letter grade for the folks here who stuck with us just because they like the dulcet baritones of Spencer and Lee and didn't actually watch the movie and are trying to think. Okay, I've listened to them yammer on for two hours about it. Do I really want to watch it? Let's give them a letter grade on Francis Ford Coppola's adaptation of John Grisham's The Rainmaker. I'll let you go
1: first. A very solid B. I think that's what I would give it. It is an effective film. It is a well-done film. It doesn't, you know, inspire me or just the film I immediately recommend to all people around me kind of thing. But it is very successful in what it wants to do. I agree with you that there's a lot of cuts from the book that I kind of miss. But as its own standalone product, it tells the tale it wants to and it tells it skillfully. Ladies
0: and gentlemen, I promise if you stick with us and you listen to a lot of these pods, these John Grisham adaptations, you are going to get robust argument between me and Spencer, and that will be very entertaining. I regret to inform you that in this case, I do not have an argument. I would give it a solid B two. I would put it in the category of films where if you are you're having a sick day, mm-hmm. you don't feel good, you're stuck on the couch. This is a great one to to, to throw on the TV and spend a couple hours with.
1: Perfect way of describing it. It's like the film where you don't know what, like before we had Netflix, you're you're scrolling through the TV guide and you don't know what else to watch and you see this is on, it's always a reliable choice.
0: Absolutely. So that is our take on John Grisham's The Rainmaker. Thanks, everybody, for joining Mangum Talks TV. We will be back next week. Next week, I think we're going to do Time to Kill, right, Spencer? I think that's the plan. All right, we're doing a Time to Kill next week. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining. You can check out all of our pods at MangumTalks.com. Check us out at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Ghana, wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you next time.